Here's one. This sounds like a deadly headline. Seven Florida cities that could be heading for a housing crisis. You got to hit a scary like sound effect with that. <laughs> you got to do that in like the, the demon voice. <laughs> Seven Florida cities that could be headed for a housing crisis. Christ. They should have never given me this thing. No, absolutely not. I've tried to, I've tried to be tame with it because it could get out of hand real fast. You know, with just the headphones I on. like to leave voicemails in that voice. Exactly. If it didn't feel official before. Oh, it sure does It's now. 100% official. We're rolling, baby. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Florida Housing Hour podcast discussions with housing industry insiders what do you think of that name is that like going to work I like it. It sounds very important it does <clears throat> it is kind of wordy though well that's the florida housing hour florida housing hour colon okay discussions with housing industry insiders okay it's one of those as long as it, that all of that doesn't try to fit on like a youtube description no. you know the florida the florida housing hour i can see it's already a kind of a tongue twister a little bit harder florida to say. housing hour Florida housing, hour. Florida housing hour. Say it five times fast. Florida housing hour. 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 Now it's Ford ho- housing hour. Yeah. Well, you still understand. <laughs> now it. it's Ford's garage. <laughs> so what this is all about, the Florida housing hour. This is a place that you can tune in. You can learn all kinds of information about the Florida market, mm-hmm. the people who work in it, in the industry, and all kinds of stuff. We I love got that. No parameters on this podcast. The questions bring up more questions and observations and stories. So. We got no time limit. We That's, got no uh, constraints. We're we're here to party. Now we've got we've <clears> got all <throat> kinds of flexibility. That's I, right. I'm all about this. Mm-hmm. I, I can I can get comfy and lean back and relax <laughs> if I want to. <clears throat> this report just came in this morning, and now I was hesitant to say this. It's unconfirmed, but we're hearing reports that we are the number one podcast in this business part. I love that. It's not confirmed yet. Hopefully, nobody beats us. But <laughs> I love as that. of today, we are the number one podcast in this business part. You know what? I I loved the fact that you invited me as a guest on the number one podcast. I'm so happy that you made it. <laughs> Speaking of guests, by the way, this is David Hardy. He is a mortgage loan originator in the state of Florida. And tell us a little bit about what you do in your... No, let's let start... Tell us a little bit about your background. My background. Where are you coming from? <clears throat> so uh, originally, uh, I started off doing. Uh, I started off in the military. Um, I, I say that that starts off with a good background description because that led into a lot of the loan stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll do it as a segue, basically. And so I started off in the military. I was working uh, with amphibious assault vehicles, which are like um, kind of like big tanks. You know, we, in the industry or actually in the Marine Corps, if we call them tanks, we get, you know, like hazed a little bit. So they're not tanks. They're track vehicles. Uh, it's a big time difference between my tracker community. Um, <clears throat> but I was a crew chief on one of these 20 ton tanks um, that transport uh, troops from ship to shore. Spent a lot of time, um, you know, doing one on one discussions with a lot of people because there's a lot of downtime in the military. So I ended up finding out my niche of being able to entertain people and have good conversation with people and be able to bring it out because when people are in the field, they uh, they, they are kind of crabby. 
I was always the source of, or tried to be a source of like entertainment and kind of entertain the guys. I was, I was the jester, <laughs> you know what I mean? Always trying to make a, a goofy laugh or whatever in really crappy times when we were just bored or in a really crappy situation. Yeah. Stuck in the mud, sleeping outside. So what year did you join? <clears throat> so I started, <clears throat> I joined in 2009. Uh, I, I went to high school and then I went to college for a little bit. Found out that my uh, my parents had cancer, so uh, I dropped out of high school or dropped out of college, uh, lost my scholarship because I dropped out and immediately went home and joined the military so that I could try to help them out with <clears throat> treatments. But at the same time, once I lost my scholarship, I was like, "What am I going to do now? Maybe I'll get my scholarship back by going to the military and getting my scholarship back, um, or going back to school and having the military pay for it." And then I just never went back to school. I ended up just going into the Marines, starting that, going active duty for a little while, switched over to the reserves. And once I became the reservist, um, I, I started working for a company called the Laser Spine Institute. I ended up knowing some people who knew some people who were connected to some people and family members of people. It was just a perfect storm for me to be able to get like a really great like job opportunity. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, in order to be able to get this job opportunity, I, I interviewed for it, and I, I kind of took off with that. And that kind of started my business career, I would say. Of um, I worked in retail for Sprint right before I started working for with the Spine Institute. Um, but that got me really good with face-to-face -face sales mm -hmm. and, and asking questions, probing questions uh, of what what to sell people, you know, what to talk about, what how to get their keep their attention when you're trying to present a product. Right. I think that's the most important part. Um, and then from that went to the Laser Spine Institute. All of that was over the phone. So that was a different, completely different type of sales background. I had to really switch up the way that I was, because I feel like I could read people well and the conversations are pretty fluid and regular, but I don't feel as if you can really read people very well over the phone if you're used to face-to-face. -to -face. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's a completely, different, completely world. different right? Completely different world. I mean, I know you've done things over the phone mm -hmm. in, in the past. Were, were you in credit collections Yeah. one point in time? Yep. I mean, that, those, that's got to be the hardest people to ever talk to. Well, I did mortgage collections. Oh, so, even worse. Well, I think it's probably better <laughs> because, you know, it it's not an annoyance. Like we're, we're talking about what the sheriff coming to your house and evicting you. That's what the beginning of that process is like. So you, that's what it leads to. Right. So if you don't pay attention and fix it, like it's, it's not a credit card that just kind of floats off and goes away if you pay it or not, you know, it winds up sense. as a collection doesn't kick you out on the street. <laughs> so I think the people that had it the hardest, um, were the, were the auto, you know, or I'm sorry, excuse me. I think the easiest way to collect is auto. Really? Easiest yeah. way. Yeah, I think those are the, the faster payers because... We're going to sell your the, car. You We're going to take a car if you don't pay the, it. The sheriff's sale is way far down the road. If you're missing a payment or running behind or something, it's like, you know, a year, six months, two years, depending on your state, backlog, timeline, all that. Car is like, hey, you're a month late. We're going to come it again. get it. We're coming to find it and take yeah. it back. Yeah. And people can't live without their car, right? They got to go and no work way. and run their kids and school and errands and everything so they're not going to let their car go so all those guys that i remember in auto we had multiple divisions it was household or hfc is what they started as hfc beneficial then household 
and it was household finance, household mortgage services is who I worked for. And I started calling 30 day lates, which is one payment. You know, you've, you've met, you're past your grace period. You missed your one payment. Largest percentage <coughs> of the pie of, you know, delinquency. And it was just straight dialer. You yeah. got thousands of people in a dialer and you just boop, you get presented. Next person. You're like, hello, hey, Next I'm calling person. from here. Next person. Yeah. This is a t- an attempt to collect a debt and, you know, everything you say can be recorded and. Yeah, I bet you, know, you could spin you know. that off and, and say that recording thing in, in your sleep because you've said it a hundred thousand times. What <clears throat> I wonder if they started doing that for like cell phones. Uh, like I wonder if like <laughs> if if you missed a mortgage payment, then someone would come repo your cell phone from you. How quickly they would pay their mortgage oh. payment? <laughs> yeah, they'd get it. But, the but cars that was and that. you know that was a <clears throat> that was sales to me. Yeah, mortgage collections. It was totally sales because you. You're holding, you're, you're getting commitments from people, you're helping them work things out, and you're figuring out a way to get it done. Yeah. And the better you are at that, the better you get rewarded in bonus and promotions and advancement and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I started in a sales job without even realizing it. Yeah. You know, I still felt like I wasn't doing sales when I was in there, but it was absolutely persuasion well, and sales. I, I kind of feel like anything that has to do with overcoming objections ends up kind of ultimately being a sales job. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you do whatever the whatever your particular, you know, type of job is, if you're in a particular place where you have to constantly overcome objections from people that are not trying to purchase something or pay for something you or get anything somebody has, to do something. Get to, yeah, per- mm-hmm. persuasion of some kind and you need to overcome verbal and mental objections from mm-hmm. people to be able to make them do that. You're selling somebody. That's true. Yeah. You're selling something. Now, what's completely different about the real estate and home loan arena mm-hmm. is that you don't just hard close someone the day that you meet them and they walk out the door with a product. Yeah. Right? Or they accomplish their goal right then and there. Absolutely. The, this industry is much more of an advisor-based, here's what we can do, problem-solving, obstacle-clearing, sales consultant. I don't even – I don't like using the word sales in this – Real estate salesperson, real no. estate. You know, I don't. I don't feel like that's the. Unless you're maybe in a model center, yeah. And you go show people a house, and then you come back and sign them up on a contract. Like, okay, that that kind of works, right? That could be a sales position, but yeah. You know, when you're just with people for the long haul, it's just a different perspective. I feel. I feel like I I started to originally when I first started doing um, anything that had to do with being a loan originator. At first, I kind of took care of, you know, the conversation and the way that I handled the conversation was very similar to that of a one call close or, um, you know, purchasing something and they're about to walk out like they had to almost as if I was trying to make sure they made a decision on who they were going to use for their mortgage right away, Mm -hmm. because that's the type of sale I was I was used to used to it. Right. Talk Um, to somebody. Got to get them in. Got to you. Got to you. Got to bring them close. Build up a you know break down the barriers of conversation and the, and those barriers of, of, you know standoff defensiveness that people have whenever you're they know that you're trying to sell them something, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually build a relationship and a rapport with them. I feel like at first I started to really try to rush that too too quick too quick and it and it was and it wasn't as successful now i feel like a lot of the people that i end up helping with getting a loan it's because of the fact that they've talked to me 25 times yeah 
and it's more of a, a developed relationship of knowing that I'm always going to pick up the phone, knowing that I'm always going to answer back their text messages, and we're going to answer their emails. We're going to be it's there. It's a true consultant. Correct. You know, uh, yeah. The real estate and mortgage, they come alongside of people through this journey that they go through of home buying or refining or investment or whatever they're going to do. They have somebody that can that's in their corner. Mortgage basically. advisor. Mm-hmm. You know, I end up being a guidance counselor sometimes mm-hmm. for certain people. or and, and a lot of people mix up our particular profession with a lot of like financial planners mm-hmm. and, you know, financial recovery, I, I guess you could say. A lot of credit adjustments and things like that that they, they feel as if we are going to know all the answers about exactly how to get to certain credit scores or how much money should I save. And it's like, that's a tricky and really interesting conversation because you don't want to not be a source for them yeah. of information, but you also don't want to talk outside your lane. Right. Well, it's it's the same thing as giving legal advice or tax advice. You know, those positions are <clears throat> licensed and you're not allowed to charge for that kind of advice. Mm-hmm. And when you have a mortgage license, you don't want to misconstrue the two and, and be walking in gray areas. So. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're wrong, it's on you. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I do. You know, I always give them options and say, here, this is how you could save X this many X amount of dollars. Talk to your financial planner about it. Yeah. Talk to your financial planner about it, and if you need somebody to talk to, I'll be happy to, to set you up with someone and, yeah. you know, you can talk to them. So, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think the all the successful agents – that I know real estate agents and loan officers are exactly that. They are not just numbers driven only. There's a huge relationship component to the way that that job works and building rapports, everything. That's the way it should be. That's why a lot of these bigger outfits come and go and don't have the most stellar record of customer service and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You know, these big transactional real estate uh, iBuyers and these big conglomerates that that try to take over the market when times are good. You know, they, who was it? Open door, right? That um, open door. They had to fire sale all their listings because they were losing so much money and everything just went crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, it all comes to, it's still local, it's still super local, it's still super personal, and the robots have not killed that aspect of this yet. I still enjoy that mail, though. <laughs> I still enjoy that mail. I'm always interested to open up an open-door piece of mail to find out what they say that they, my house is going to be worth mm-hmm. or um, or or what they would will, be willing to pay for in cash right. you know, off of a house Before that they, they come seen. look at it and yeah. take off 10000 and <laughs> yeah. 20000 and 30000 I'm like, here. oh, really? I'm sure this is official mm-hmm. you know, because you guys haven't seen a single lick of my house. <clears throat> you don't sound like you're from Florida. Where are you from? Uh, so originally, um, even though I don't sound like any of my cousins, I'm actually from Georgia. Um, Albany, Zinger. Georgia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, South Georgia? Yeah. It's, it's definitely South Georgia. Yeah. Um, South there, Georgia had, had a minute in the last few years, like with <laughs> all the talent coming out of there and the country music. Oh, really? Luke Brian and Jason Aldean. Oh, yeah. Like those are all South Georgia boys so i believe don't quote me on this but i believe uh luke bryan came from like right where i was basically born Mm -hmm. i i my cousin knew him well 
Okay. Um, to cool. where they actually like, it, at one point in time, he bragged to me. He says, I've got Luke Bryan's phone number <laughs> in my phone, man. I'm like, all right, I get it. I understand. So I, I my, see, my, my whole family is kind of very diverse. My, uh, my dad's from Massachusetts and he's, he doesn't have a wicked hard Boston accent or nothing. My sisters do, my older sisters do, um, cause they grew up and stayed there, but my dad was not about to have his sons and his daughter um, be or have a southern accent either. That wasn't going to happen. So my mom and dad met in Georgia. My mom was actually a wedding singer, believe it or not, however much of a weird tale and story tale this is. Um, she was a wedding singer, met her at a wedding. They ended up um, starting to date. And then once you know they got married and, and was about to have my older brother for their first kid, I they decided that like, we're not going to raise our kids here. So my brother and I and my little sister were born. And then once we were born, they moved us to Tampa and moved us to Brandon. So pretty much Brandon has been all I've, I've really known for, you know, I was raised here. I raised, uh, I went to Burns middle school. I went to Lithia, uh, Lithia Springs elementary. I went to uh, Bloomingdale high school. (laughs) You know, this whole area in Brandon has pretty much been like my home, my home base. But the military moved me around a little bit. Um, and then, you know, the Laser Spine Institute moved me around a little bit. Where did you go to basic? So I was in Paris Island, mm-hmm. in Paradise Island, <laughs> funnest place on earth, of course. Uh, home of the Sand Flea, <laughs> where, where you just get eaten alive. Um, I went to Paris, Paris Island, and then I went, we go to combat training as soon as you get out of boot camp. Um, combat training is in North Carolina. And um, you're there for, a couple of weeks, depending on, you know, between boot camp and combat training, like 62 days of training for um, boot camp. And then you do another couple of weeks for combat training. And then they send you to your MOS school. My MOS school was in California. So I went over to Camp Pendleton in California and was there. Is that the base Oof. that they do train basic at too? So it, it's Pendleton? close. Yeah, it's not directly on Pendleton, um, but it's it's, like that it's area. close to it. Yeah. What's, the, what's it called out there? They call them Hollywood Marines. Mm. Hollywood Marines. What's the official California. name of it? Uh, remember? We should probably look that up. That's fine. I should probably know that on camera. <laughs> Is it Camp Pendleton? No. Yeah, it might be Camp Pendleton, just a different section of it that I've never been to. Bridgeport? Is it Bridgeport? Well... See, the way that I see it, <clears throat> Marines have very strong uh, opinions about um, who's tougher. The West Coast or East Coast? Yes. It's a constant conflict between the two. If you were a West Coast Marine, you're going to make fun of East Coast, East Coast Marines and vice versa. Because we have, uh, in Paris Island, the original birthplace of the Marine, I might add. They call it the Marine Corps recruit depot, depot in san diego yep okay and and at the depot <clears throat> they have certain um types of things that are much more difficult um for like hiking mm-hmm. you know they they have what they actually call mount mother <laughs> believe it or not they have, they have this giant mountain out there that they make them hike yeah there's elevation there i've and never like paris island doesn't have elevation does no, it just flat it's flat yeah but we've got the heat humidity that's non-stop the humidity the sand fleas yep. and the remote 
aspect of it. In California, everything's pretty San visible. Diego. San Diego. Yeah, right. Literally, I went there one time, and literally as I could see a bus of recruits getting off the bus, there's a plane going over the top. And I don't know about I don't know about, you know, other Marines, but for me, that would be worse than being in a remote area <laughs> is seeing all these people about to go on vacation mm -hmm. and you know you're stuck in Marine Corps boot camp for the next, <laughs> you know, 62 days. Yeah. And apparently that they there's an airport right next to it. They could just see flights going whenever they're doing these training stuff. And that would get in my head, I feel. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was in Paris Island, you know you're on your own. There's no one out there. There's no one out there to save you. There's no visibility of any kind. Whatever they want to do to make it to where it's going to be a very difficult day for you, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And there's that's no way what, off. That's what they're there for. <laughs> what turns out tough Marines. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What do you do around here now for fun? Like when you're not uh when you're not being the loan officer, what are you doing? Um a couple different things. I have a I have um obviously because of the fact that I was raised here, I have a pretty good fr friend base that's here. A lot of different types of groups of friends, depending on what it is that I'm, you know, my my girlfriend and I are trying to get into for the mm -hmm. weekend. Um, I really have picked up playing golf a lot uh, recently, and I didn't prior to for a little while because uh, I tore my Achilles, and when I tore my Achilles, I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this for quite a while. I really couldn't do anything for almost a year and a half. Mm -hmm. It was detriment. So um, because of which, uh, I started to pick it up and started to get back into it again. And now, you know, I'm still no good, um, but I really enjoy it, you know, being able to get out there and kind of relax, especially after the weeks that we have when they're, my phone doesn't leave my hand or my mm -hmm. face. Yeah. Um, it really is nice to be able to get out there and just kind of put my phone away as much as I can. And then, lo and behold, it's also always ends up being like the times that I go golfing or the times that I get the most phone calls about work. Yeah. You know, it's like you know you take a day off or whenever you I dedicate. Start going on on like Tuesday mornings. Yeah, I have to start ran like randomly yeah, doing just, that. Just work late, and go early. Every Play once in a while, if I can get out because we have a low schedule or a lighter schedule, or at least on paper we have a lighter schedule, or we're caught up on some things, whatever the case may be, I'm gonna try to get out because I feel like it's a good mental escape. Oh yeah, it's big great. time for being able to relax. That's something we talk about, not the mental piece, but. Just being out in Florida, and that's something we've talked about on this show, is yep. it's January 15th. What do you want to do today? Well, we could go to the beach, or we could go play golf, or yep. we could go to Disney World. What is it going to be? Because Sky's it's like limit. 75 degrees outside. Yeah. You know, the coldest it gets is in the 30s sometimes. I mean, for like a day or two. Yeah, it hardly, it, yeah. And those particular days, you're kind of like, oh, look, we actually do get weather. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, I'm going to wear this nice jacket I've had for three years and I've worn it three times, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or are you going to sit by a fire because you've been excited about being able to use, you know, an outside fireplace or something like that? Yeah, I was talking the other day and it was we said it's Florida gives you a much more usable year. Like you've got more. There's more time in the year here because you can do whatever you want to. Yeah. Outside. Yeah, that you makes a lot of sense. Problems. I've never, never heard anybody like put it that way. Yeah. It's like it's almost like it extends you. Yeah. It extends your your usable time. Yeah, and you don't feel trapped. Yeah. And when I when I was um, working for the Laser Spine Institute, they one of the times that they uh, moved out there for a promotion to start doing face to face consultations with spine patients, and 
when they moved me out there, I had never really lived in an area that got trapped with snow. Mm-hmm. Well, my buddy lived in Nashville for a, a while, and he said cabin fever is a very real thing because everybody starts going stir crazy like late February trying to thaw the snow, get rid of it, quit coming, quit snowing, like, oh, quit yeah. being cold because it sucks. You know? Well, not only that, but it also changes your mood. Yeah. You know, th- because yeah. everything's gray. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I'd be like, man, when is the last time that it's been a sunny day outside? Like, well, that's what they in say in, in Seattle, in uh, you know Oregon. There's a lot of depression there, like yep. the suicide. I, I don't know if this is true. I've just heard it. Suicide rates higher out there because everybody's just in the gray, dark, gloomy, misty rain yep. all the time. And it it took a toll. Yeah, it it took a toll. I would I would find myself in, and I'm a pretty happy go lucky energetic cheery guy Mm -hmm. for the most part you know people know me as a pretty high energy person and i totally understand that i like to be that person i did catch myself several times when i was in st louis being like man i'm just in a bad mood for for no reason yeah i'm just crotchety (laughs) i'm just just like this all the time but it was because i hadn't seen the sun i feel like in like six days everything's gray um non-stop and then i would be trapped and you know my apartment not wanting to go out into the snow or you know under 10 degrees mm-hmm. I, didn't, I I absolutely damn sure didn't want to go drive my truck around you know and slide all over like a bobsled that was ridiculous <laughs> those videos are hilarious with the people that are recording a stop sign and it's just car after car after car I saw that sometimes it's crazy well because St. Louis isn't really like a a, a area that is it's not like a Chicago, New York, Massachusetts that's very accustomed to a yeah. lot of snow. Right. The the cities that usually have the worst, um, you know, kind of spout of, of accidents and stuff are the ones that are not normally They're covered not, yeah. in snow. Every couple of years it snows a lot or something when, like that. When, they, when we used to get the snow in St. Louis, it wasn't heavy, heavy snow to where it was easy, to, you know, to kind of control. And they didn't have like city resources to be mm-hmm. able to clean off the snow like really fast yeah so it would it would melt and everything would be or every, it would harden and everything would become straight ice yep that's so the worst i feel like people especially in florida uh see those videos of those cars sliding and they're like how is it how is it you know to where in massachusetts you see these huge snowstorms that's a huge motivation motivator to get people to look here yep and this recent COVID boom, post-COVID boom is really nothing new to us. No. You know, Florida's been a destination for people for, I mean, since the, the 50s, dawn of 40s time. and 50s <laughs> and when people really started coming, like, mm-hmm. in droves. But it hasn't slowed down. And I think that's why Florida natives are, we're, we're a rare breed. You know, I was born and raised here, lived out of state for a year. Otherwise, I've been Total. right here the whole time. Yeah. Where did you live out of state? North Carolina. Oh, yeah. In Charlotte. Yeah. How did you like Charlotte? Charlotte itself was a city, you know, okay. but the surrounding area was awesome, amazing, beautiful. They're, they're different up there. They've got, they char- they got state tax in North Carolina. Yep. And in, in Missouri, too. But what the, I think what, what I saw is that things were very nice. Because of it. Medians, roadways, <laughs> like... Everything was very well put together, pretty decorated, you know, all of that. And then not to mention, you really do get all four seasons in an area like that. You get mm-hmm. a true fall, a true winter, 
summer. The summer I was there was brutal. They were breaking records. Like there's some major heat wave that came oh, through. Oh, really? My dad came to see me once, and he <coughs> when he landed at the airport, I picked him up at like 10 o'clock at night, and on the airport thermometer sign, it said like 96 degrees <laughs> at nighttime. At night. After Not just after the sun went down, like throughout few hours the night. in the night. <laughs> and you know, not a lot of people were dying during that. A lot of people... You know, having heat strokes and He's stuff. And heat exhaustion, heat strokes. And it, it went on for like a solid week, and it would get up like 105, 106. <sighs> and we don't even get that kind of heat here. No. It doesn't get that hot. That was the crazy part about St. Louis, too. I feel like their their summers were worse. Yeah. Were worse than what I'm used to and accustomed to here. Mm-hmm. Even though we obviously have a, a fair amount, you know, a, a high amount of humidity, I felt like I was more miserable because I was used to the cold. Because you got used to the cold, blood thins out a little bit, you know, or thickens up a little bit. You're used to, where to wearing you, you, more clothes. Yeah, you used to, and then once it's hot, you are dying. Yeah. You are melting. And I was like, this is terrible. And then I would come to, you know, I I would visit it, Florida because all my friends and family base was really here. Mm. I would visit as often as I possibly could. And then I would pop right back into the, I'm like, man, I don't want to go home. <laughs> I don't want to go home. I don't, I don't want to go back to St. Louis. I want to come back here. And then luckily, I was able to get a, a promotion within the company that moved me back to Tampa, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, well, good. Luckily. So that company's not around anymore, right? It's no. gone? No, the Titanic sank. Um, this particular company was an organization that was uh, more profitable than Google at one point in time. Wow. Um, they were just, it was a great company to work for. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely owe a lot of my experience, connections, relationships, business relationships, um, a lot of really great times, a lot of really great camaraderie that I felt like. Like they were the first company I worked for that really had um, a full on. What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> had like a full on like a vision, like a yeah, like like a full vibe. Mm-hmm. Like every everything within the company, they made sure to try to make sure that their employees were very happy all the time. And it's easy to do, I feel like, when the when company itself is Google. making more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Like we used to have the most extravagant like Christmas parties. And, Not and just a, a pizza party from uh, Little Caesars. There was right? none of that. Yeah, <laughs> that was at the very end of the, of the, you know, once it started to get to just straight pizza, pizza parties from, you know, Hungry Howie's. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's when we know we were in trouble. Yeah, is because beforehand we were doing, you know, rights. You know, we were ordering rights. We had we had all kinds of stuff coming in from Moreno's and from from. I mean, you name it. Yeah. We we had catering from so many local Tampa restaurants that were high end. We didn't have stuff from the Columbia. You know, name me another company that randomly brings in lunch for yeah. everybody. Right. You know, and a, and a sales staff of like several hundred. Like not even a small amount. Back they would when do I entire... was in collections, they would. Uh, not real sure how they legally got away with it, you know. And I don't think about it, but you were required to be there until the end of the month. When does the end of the month end? Right, mm-hmm. midnight on the thirtieth or thirty-first or whatever the last day of the month is, because you go, 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 and that's their big push. That's when they want to get all the numbers because all everybody's in the habit of pushing for that end of month Mm -hmm. and they were like fanatic they were i don't even know the word they obsessed over 
the end of month. And yeah. It was such a huge push. And I was always like, if you guys would just hit your goals earlier, in the you month. wouldn't literally have to be here until 1 or 2 in the morning yeah. and be getting home at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning after closing up. Cause, but anyway, they would. we all had to stay there. Many times till midnight, most times till like 11 o'clock. Because yeah. the time zones, you got to stop collecting at 9 p.m.? been so long i don't remember eight or nine i think 9 p.m is when you is the cutoff so then you turn all the phones point them at the central time zone and then as the clock rolls you just keep pushing to mountain and pacific and then once you get past all that you can't call anymore you're done you go home but i remember these managers running around just like frantic pushing pushing pushing, get this make this exception do this one more yeah Yeah. what led me to that is that they did bring in awesome food on those days so they didn't want you leaving for lunch they didn't mm-hmm. want anybody gonna eat at your desk stay here go eat get back on the phone and it was it was crazy and but you know i didn't mind it at the time because we're all getting paid well making yeah. good bonuses and getting the team there and like helping each other do stuff so it was it was great but there but there were a b- bunch of us hundreds and hundreds of people so they'd have big catering come in and yep you know have all kinds of that's exactly what i was going to say about the leisure spine institute is that those nights that they were really trying to push mm-hmm. they basically had an incentive especially because we were like young salespeople. A, a predominant amount of the people that worked in in what it is that i did at that time were in their low 20s mm-hmm. there was a lot of that same camaraderie because people would hang out and go out and go you know go out partying and drinking afterwards on weekends and stuff like that these were they made like a friend base community base for having a lot of people around the same age groups that also were working very hard at the same time so it was a really good vibe for everybody because everybody you wanted to be very productive because you wanted to stick out in your friend group of being a top salesperson Mm -hmm. um but they did the same type of general aspect is that they would order dinner to be delivered at like seven o'clock at night so it's just late enough to where you would have to work all the way through it in order to be able to get it yeah so i made it you know it it was a it was a thing when i was in my low 20s of like if i don't have to pay for dinner and i can get another dinner and i can make more money all the way up until seven o'clock that was good for two reasons you know one one i'm saving money yeah two I'm, i'm making more money and I'm also going to, you know, just going to go home and try to make some dinner anyways. Might as and well stay here, you, make some more money. Enjoy being where you're at. Absolutely. You know, if it was a place that you hated, you run as far away as you could. As quickly as Leave the fun. dinner there. I'll go get McDonald's. Exactly. <laughs> I don't care if I get Taco Bell right. on the way home, you know. Yep. But it's a smart strategy as a company. No, it works for, for sure. So what what led you to the real estate industry, mortgage mortgage world? What led you there? <laughs> So when the Titanic sh- sank, and when I keep referring to that is when Laser Spine Institute went out of business, um, they there was no heads up. I mean, the writing was kind of on the wall um, for those who were really, you know, trying to get in front of it, paying attention, paying attention. Mm-hmm. I I feel like at that particular time I was kind of wanted to look the other way because I really loved that job mm-hmm. and I really loved that company. I didn't want to accept the fact that we were on our way to the bottom of the ocean. Um, but when it happened, I didn't really have anything kind of lined up. I started, you know, I tried other other roles. Um, and whenever I was working with the Laser Spine Institute and I was successful and I had money flowing, that's when I bought my first house. And that's when... Um, a friend of mine uh, who was also on the podcast, Tara Burley, 
um, helped me with being able to get involved with you. And she did the introduction to make sure that um, I knew the information necessary to understand how my benefit of having a VA loan, I could actually use it. Because at that point, I had no idea what that even meant. Right. You know, how to use this VA loan. I was still under the impression, I feel like, that like all I heard, all I knew about real estate and about, you know, the cost of buying a house was 20%. Mm-hmm. That's just a number that sticks it. I feel like a lot of people's heads has never bought a house before. It's the same today. Yeah, 20%, people, 20%, it's that, 20%. It's that, it's that carryover um, old school knowledge that 20% is kind of your classic standard payment, down yep. payment. Yep. So and because of which, I didn't know um, that I had such a great opportunity in front of me for being able to do like a 0% down VA loan. And that's when, you know, you kind of walked me through everything, gave me the information that was necessary. And I was like, kind of blown away. Really? At how easy (laughs) it was. At how easy it was to be able to get a VA loan completed. what you'd be paying in rent for for a comparable place, you know. I should have done it years before that. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I, I feel like a lot of the feedback I get from some of the, especially from some of the veterans that I help out for their first home. That's a lot of the feedback I get is, oh, man, I should have done this a long time ago because the 0% down aspect of it, I could have just been paying myself instead of paying for somebody else's rent. Yeah. And that's what we tell people over and over. And we sound like broken records, but it's true. until you go through that and get over the hump, some of, sometimes that falls on deaf ears because yep. they feel like you, they were in your position. They just didn't know. Yeah. They didn't. They don't have a full understanding of the way that it could, <laughs> it could go. So once you helped me with the VA loan, um, I continue to work with the Laser Spawn Institute. You and I had conversations every once in a while, just touching base or whatever the case may be, because I had a great experience. And then once I wasn't really happy with working in necessarily like the medical community at that particular time, I was like, you know what? Maybe I just got to switch it up so entirely. So they Laser Spine folded around this time, right? Later, Laser Spine folded, and then I started to work for this other company called the Lung Health Institute. Mm-hmm. And I felt Laser Spine Institute, Lung Health Institute, a lot of the people that went from they're they're in the same general area in <laughs> yeah, there, right? Exactly. Got it. Just another no, no, institute no of a different body part, <laughs> you know. It's just a different college. Um so the the um the transition from one to the other was within a couple of weeks and I, I had known a, a couple of different employees, obviously from working with the Laser Spine Institute for six years that went to this company from, you know, when, when the ship sank. Um, and I kind of went along with that. What am I going to do now? Yeah. Go here. Natural progression. Some people had already started working there prior to the laser spine Institute folding, Mm -hmm. uh, and already made that transition. So I, you know, kind of probed them a little bit, asked how they liked it. They all gave me their very PC answers. And then, um, once, once I started working there, I kind of realized like that, that wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. I feel like the aspect of being able to feel like I'm helping people, uh, like actually helping or guiding people through something, that's what makes me excited about being able to do something is I'm providing a service to actually help people. Mm-hmm. Um, with that job, I would help only so much to where they had these terminal illnesses that they would eventually pass away a lot of times. Like sometimes I would call on a Thursday have you know? I would t- I would talk with these these particular uh, patients for six weeks, mm-hmm. six weeks, and after 
six weeks, I would call them on a Thursday and touch base with them, find out if they're still, you know, continuously try to build rapport before we find out if they're going to move forward with the treatment. And then I would call them on Monday after the weekend and their wife would pick up and mm. say, yeah, it's not happening. And, you know, they're gone. So that type of hit consistently, because that happened, started to happen more frequent mm -hmm. because I had a, a long, large, uh, longer pipeline. I started to get real over that yeah, real that's fast. Depressing. I have an emotional connection to a lot of people that I end up having a long, a long time relationship with. Yeah. Whether it be over the phone or in person. Right. I connect with a lot of people. So mm -hmm. I, I like to be able to do that. And I feel like it's genuinely something that I I lost is not something that I'm gonna be able to handle quite over well. Over and over and over and not over. at a workplace. Yeah. You know, right. if it happens to me personally, that's something that obviously everybody goes through on their outside lines, but I'm not mm -hmm. gonna choose to be in a profession where I have to deal with that consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, some loans die, but that's completely different from from a human. It's true. So that's how I ended up making the transition. Once once the Lung Health Institute wasn't really an option, I started to kind of look into what other options. And then you and I ended up having a long conversation. Uh, and I got recruited by by high. <laughs> yeah, that's um it's a natural progression. You know, you look for people as a as a business owner, you look for people who can connect with people, yep. right? Who who can be the face, who can go out and talk and and win people and get them to know you and like you and end up trusting you. And, you know, it's a big something to be said about being able to sit down with just about anyone yep. and have a conversation and have a, a rapport, whether you're trying, I mean, you're not, you're not trying to, they're not your mark. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're people who need help. I, I'm going to show you what I'm all about. If you don't go with me, then whatever, you know, I'll, I'm going to find the people that I connect with and mesh with. And, you know, you do the same thing. I feel like, yeah, because I feel like everyone buys a house. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to buy a house. doesn't matter, you know, race, age, male or female. It, it doesn't make a difference. Everyone's trying you know, to have that home that they want to be able to purchase. So why not have a type of personality be able to, to that connect can connect with any type of person? I don't feel like I have a very specific niche of people that I get along with more than others. I just feel like if you are open to have good conversation and generally a nice human being, I can get along with you. Yeah. Which That's is good. helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how did you get into the mortgage industry? Well, I started in collections. Collections. So that was that was my first real job, you know, corporate actual direct deposit big boy job you know like you know, not, not getting to not having to swing by and get pick up my paycheck <laughs> yeah it was a uh i did that for a well i worked there for five years household was eventually bought out by hsbc which used to have a big presence here they're mostly in europe and latin america and asia now that's like their big footprint mm. Um, they do some like high net worth, high wealth type stuff here too. Sometimes I think they have some places here for that, but they got bought out. So I started calling the 30 day people and then I got moved over to the 60 day people. Yep. And then I got moved to the 90 day people and then lost mitigation. I kind of worked my way up the delinquency ladder mm -hmm. and then got through, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's just a funny saying. I to know. Me. <laughs> it's a, it's a, whole industry yeah like it's a thing the delinquency a, a lot of pain that's what it is it's like each level progresses into a more 
problem for the company. Yeah. Because the more that they have in delinquency, the worse their stock does. Because you don't want to have too many loans and delinquents. You need to cure those because the interest and the payments and the, the health of those packaged up loans is what's keeping the company afloat. Yeah. So it's a big, that's when the financial crisis hit and the meltdown happened. Delinquencies were out of control and that's what, uh, that's what killed them. Yeah. What killed all those banks. So anyway, I, I've kind of stumbled my way into analytics around that time because I found out that I had a, a penchant for spreadsheets and data. So I started to use that in my job and then it, that got noticed and got me plucked out from the phone and put into a, like a, a business advisor, a business analyst role. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of worked MIS, information systems, data analyst, for the business analyst for the company. So it wasn't like some kind of coding job or anything like that. It was, hey, I know how this business works. I know what your reports need to look like. I can build those reports and then feed the whole company with what we need to, to do. Mm. So that was... That's what got me into the analytic piece of it. Very type type A personality, perfect uh, situation for you. Yeah, I guess so. <clears throat> the analytics aspect of it, I'm sure. Yeah. Controlling of the numbers and data. Yep, seeing it all. So then I, uh, one of my buddies got out of the collection side, default side, and went over into underwriting. And that really opened up, shined a light on origination mm -hmm. and the front end of when these loans start. Like I started as we were taking them away, right? Until we yeah. were getting them into foreclosure and, or working them out. Like I'm, I come in, I start my career in the midstream of like this mortgage already exists. So in my mind, everybody has a mortgage, you know, they've got, um, makes sense. Everybody's got a, a loan payment. So never really gave too much thought about how they got it or who gave it to them or how, what they did to qualify or, any of that kind of stuff. You're just already a part of a I'm different in it. I'm step of the payment. process. Right. That's yeah. all I'm concerned with. So I start hearing about underwriting and seeing what's happening there. So I decide, hey, I can do this. I can figure this stuff out. So I went and changed positions in the company. And I'm I'm grateful and blessed to have started there because it was they did a really good job of taking care of their employees and hiring from within and letting people kind of move around and learn and, and do things. They mm -hmm. were really they get they should get a lot of credit for that and i've got friends today that i knew back then you know 22 years ago now that's when it's coming about that time wow. and i just it was like drinking from a fire hose like i got so much knowledge there and so when i started underwriting <clears throat> we were going through we we only underwrote closed loans cuz we underwrote for the credit line that was so basically we had a what we called sellers and they were smaller mortgage companies and we would give them warehouse lines we'd give them 10 million dollars or 100 million dollars or whatever and they would go out and they'd run their whole entire operation on the credit line that they took from us and then when it they close the loan they'd fund it they'd go through all the closing and post closing and all that and they would deliver us back a full loan package with all the origination stuff and all of the closing and post-closing and compliance and audit and everything at the end. So you got so to see all of that. I saw all of it. And it was our job as underwriters to go in and fill out what we call the due diligence worksheet, mm -hmm. which was a big legal size thing with a bunch of boxes and check marks and 
little places for calculations and numbers to fill in. Mm -hmm. And so it was literally on paper. Like we didn't, when the computer, we all had computers, like we email computers, internet, all that stuff, (laughs) but they were the big CRT monitors, you know, not the little paper thin monitors we have today, but they were, uh, you know, we'd have to run that whole sheet. So I saw origination. I saw what they made what kind of money they had, their down payments, what they were doing for work, all that stuff, their credit reports, their scores, their trade lines, collections, other mortgages, all that stuff. And then on the other side of the file was all the post-closing stuff. So you'd review that the note's accurate, the percentage is right, the addresses are right. You go through all these check marks to make sure everything fits the box. And then I, the first thing in there was the HUD-1, which is the old settlement statement. We don't use it anymore in QM world. So I was seeing all of these commissions, like loan officers. Just making crazy money. This is pre-2006, right? Okay, before. This is before everything melted down. So loan officer compensation was out of control at that time. What were the percentages back then? It was common to see three on the front and three on the back. So you could pull six points off of a oh off of a loan. And then the realtor commissions, you know, haven't really changed much, but those were three and three and a half percent, two percent, two and a half or whatever. Yeah, but I had no idea, still had no idea, even yeah. though I've been doing this for several years now, I had no idea that back then it was six percent mm-hmm. potentially on the front and the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were making tons of money. That is crazy. Money and totally makes sure makes sense as to why it is that everybody got so greedy with stated income and stated assets. It was definitely a component. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't the sole purpose, but it was a component. Wow. So I'm seeing all this stuff come through and I'm like, you know, I I under, underwriter for about about two years and I'd travel a little bit. I'd go to these sellers and kind of be in their offices and see what they do. Yeah. And like, I see them originating and doing loans and, you know, it it got to a point where I was like, I'm, I think I can be a real estate agent because I wasn't even thinking loans at the time. I was like, these realtors are doing a really good job out here. And I've got all this background. I've got years of information that I can just download into this new job right now. And so, yeah, I became a realtor and this was about 2004 and I was, you know, working with coworkers, friends, had some outside clients, but I maintained my day job for a little while. And then the real estate job career started to overtake the day job. And I never been so nervous in my life to leave and a real job, leave my W2 paycheck mm-hmm. and the guaranteed go in 401k and yep. health insurance and yep. all the stuff that comes along with a good employer i remember for like a month i just had these weird butterflies in my stomach all the time anytime that thought came in my head my stomach would turn scary and i'm not generally anxious or stressed out or like worried about a lot of stuff that's really one time in my life where i felt like man this is a this is going to be a huge jump (laughs) this is going to be something completely different because that was also my first real job at that company so I'd never been between jobs. I'd never gone and found another job. This was, they were my people. You know, I was under their umbrella for so long that yep. I felt really nervous about stepping out. But eventually I did it. Uh, stepped out, went full time. And then 
lasted about two years in real estate. And then as the meltdown started, I, I, I couldn't tell what was going on. Like I, nobody had a crystal ball. Nobody could tell what's going to happen here. You know, I wound up with like 20 listings and I couldn't sell any of them because the whole neighborhood's for sale at this point. It, mm -hmm. it, you see, you can pull up old news articles and they're taking pictures in the neighborhood and 80% of the houses down the road have a for sale sign in them. So good luck being a listing agent at that time yeah. and like trying to move inventory. So yeah, I, I abandoned it. I was like, okay, well I'm leaving. I'm going to go back to loans. <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Why are you going to do that? <laughs> Why do you think one is working right yeah. now and the other one's not? And so I was like, okay, well, then that's when I moved to Charlotte. I got a job with a company up there, Sendera Funding, and uh, they were eventually bought out by Goldman Sachs. And while I was at Sendera was when everything started to, the sky started to fall. And all the subprime stuff was getting axed out of people's product offerings. And then the Alt-A, what we called it, like the cleaner subprime, was starting to get chopped. And it all basically came, all these banks were failing. You know, the implodometer on the website, you'd check that every day and see a competitor going down. And we're like, mm, this is not good. Like Anyone who doesn't know what all these terms mean, watch the movie The Big Short. Oh, yeah. They sum it up very, that's a that's The movie a very, was awesome. For the type of production that it was, like Hollywood, Pretty it's accurate. A pretty good. Pretty good representation. You know, I remember the first time I saw that movie, I didn't know half of the terms mm -hmm. that they were talking about. You know, the A paper. Mm -hmm. You know, double yeah. A, double well, A, triple funny A. Because Sendera, you know, they had Goldman Sachs money. Yeah, they had Goldman backing, so they were safe from being completely shut down. <laughs> but all the salespeople that were there, I had three really good months there because I got ramped up in. I started killing it for like three months and then everything started to fall and all of us went down. Like mm. I remember they, they took all of our salespeople and cut us into thirds and they ranked us by volume and cut us into thirds. And they said the top third, we're going to pay a guarantee for the next three months. So you'll stay here. The middle third, we're going to pay like 25% of that guarantee and the lower third, you're done. You're fired. We're, you, you're not here anymore. First place, set of steak knives. <laughs> yeah. Second place, yeah. you're fired. <laughs> and it was real. That 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 bottom third thing is is true. I mean, a lot of businesses rank and fire like that. That's yeah. a, that's a thing for them. But that happened, and so I held on longer because I had that guarantee. But in the meantime, I relocated back to Florida. I was going to be the outside sales executive, account executive, instead of inside, like I was. And luckily, you know, I got here and settled, and then all the products were gone. And now we were an FHA lender. And I'm like, what's FHA? <laughs> how, do you, how do you do FHA loans? And I just didn't have, I didn't stick around. I, I went back to default because the bubble shifted. You yeah. know, it went from originations to where all the work is to now, now everyone's defaulting. Now it's moved over into default. Hey, I've got default experience. I've got analytic experience. Like I can, Follow the I'm money. back, maybe. You know, and I went in and I was able it. Thankfully, I'm grateful for for them again. HSBC, I went back to work there. I got rehired. And now I was calling people that were nine months late on their loans and trying to set nine up. Nine months? You know what? The, oh, because, you know because what the back then thing? They, were, they had so many people that oh, were so man. far delinquent. They and didn't even had have time to each, be able to kick them out. 
collectors have what they call a queue, mm-hmm. and it's your assigned accounts. And they take a beginning a month snapshot of what's in there, what's owed, the balances, and then they take an end of month snapshot. And whatever you were able to move out of that, that's how they calculated your bonus and your quality of, you know, your output basically. Yep. So, but we had each each collector had like twenty five hundred accounts in their queue. Twenty five hundred yes. per person, and we had a month to work through it and figure something out. <laughs> you better per, do over a hundred a day, and we had hundreds of collectors. You know, it wasn't just like four people sitting there in a little room. Yeah, it was a call center. It wasn't a staffing and, problem, exactly. And talk about it. I mean, and pop, and you know what was crazy. My my old my old collector people will will get a kick out of this. You'd have to call somebody up, and you had to they get they got you on a script. So they tried to turn everybody into robots. And when we were all successful prior, we all had our own personalities and our own way of talking to people, and it was very unique and individual. And those people, if you found the good ones, they'd move a lot more money for you than than the people just reading off a script. Yes, but when HSBC bought it. They implemented a call model, and it was a uh, a flow chart, a big old ugly, complicated flow chart with lines and X's and go here, and if this happens, go here. And the opening line was like, "Hey, this is Josh calling from HSBC. I'm calling about your account at so and so address. Just to let you know, this is an attempt to collect a debt by a debt collector, and this call may be quali- monitored for quality assurance. I'm calling about your past due amount of." $47,233. Can you pay that today? That's how they wanted you to start? Yeah. Well, that's a great way I'm to I'm calling you about your $50,000. Can you pay that today? <laughs> and these are people that are nine months past due. 100%. So this is not their first phone call. I know you haven't paid in a while. Can you pay for a Mercedes today? No. When can you pay that? No. That's the next question. How much can you pay today? Do you have the ability to be able to put on a, a Honda Accord on your credit card right now? Mm-hmm. Get out of here. That's how you had to open every single call. And if you didn't do it, you got dinged. And if you got dinged so many times, you got you got kicked out. So anybody, it just turned into like a the drudgery of like cubicle work. Because you know that you don't have any control over anything at yeah. that point. You're just there doing what they want you to do, pushing the buttons. I felt like it was like one of those movies where they're just sitting in a cubicle. Over and over, it's doing the same thing. Have you seen my stapler? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like it was similar at Laser Spine Institute too, because when I first got there, it was kind of like anything goes. You know, yeah. you can. You, it, wh- however, you're Not going wh- to like, be able to all connect. Legal. It was all, all legal, legal, nothing shady. They just didn't. They didn't put you in a box. They hired you to do that job. I wasn't doing anything or saying anything that was, you know, incorrect. Yeah. Or was oh, too much. You know. Uh, creating too many you know like rainbows and butterflies for you know setting the right expectations for people were always important but they didn't necessarily go to script after i started doing consultations and doing face-to-face stuff which also had its own completely different model yeah um then they took all of the people that were on the phone and put them on a script and that's when a lot of times you know the productivity went kind of down when i was on there this is kind of a side story, uh, but it ends up being kind of fun. Like this is the type of atmosphere that we had in this job is the fact that we, my particular team used to have a chart of different sayings 
that you could say like you know uh you know bread and butter the the, the hobo on a ham sandwich shack in the paint all these particular types of like different like random hilarious sayings and we had a tally of how many times you can incorporate those sayings into your conversations with patients in like a positive way right it, it wasn't something that we were trying to you know completely ruin the conversation and not build rapport with people but those particular sayings would make people laugh now that's a good idea exactly <laughs> that type of stuff like that so <laughs> it, it was always a game to try to see how many times you can make your patients laugh in a very serious conversation about right. spine surgery so it made a lot more of a playful atmosphere and we were selling left and right i mean we were we were we used to have these big gongs and every time that you used to sell a surgery or book a surgery you ring the gong or you spin a prize wheel or something like that we had a uh, it made a really fun atmosphere my old sales manager he had some big speakers plugged into his computer and anytime a loan came in like we get a new loan package from a from a broker we were calling on he would uh let you come over and pick tell him what itunes song you wanted to hear yeah, and this is back when iTunes had like fifteen minutes, fifteen second previews on their thing. You know, you double click it. If you didn't own the song, yeah, you'd have to buy the song to hear it all. But they'd give you the fifteen oh second. My gosh, I remember those. And days. he would go and just play that over the speakers, so it was constantly a same same kind of environment. What was your song? I had <laughs> a bunch of songs. <laughs> Do you remember like a specific yeah. one? Was like, ludicrous move? Um, you was Luda, Hendrix, huh? Hendrix uh fire okay um, we all we all had our different ones you know? <laughs> i love that yeah that was that was fun so then i i left hsbc and i because i was i think i spent another year there and it was such a different environment though because hsbc was in charge now so now we were a bank and before we were a finance company mm. basically so a lot of compliance a lot of remote um you know, headquarters now in London and like a, it was just a totally different landscape. So the movement was squashed. Like yeah. people, you, you couldn't just hop out and go somewhere else in there anymore. It was like a, it was tough. They're out of, they're gone now. They, they dismantled that whole thing. So it was, it was on the decline at that time already. And, but now they're gone. But so I wound up going over to a special servicer in Tampa called quantum servicing. And, uh, I knew some people in and out of there that had been with me at other companies. And it was like one of those natural kind of progression things, yeah. you know, this is okay. Well, here's where I can go. So I started over there, a lot more responsibility, a lot less call structure, you know, like the way that they did things with the call model. And, uh, that worked out a lot better and eventually got promoted a few times there and just kind of ran all the way up through that and then left them and then I had a short stint at Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, as a business analyst again. And when I talk about loans being at big institutions and big banks, it's scary, like how disorganized <laughs> these big operations are oh. and how sloppily they're ran. And, like, there's just so much... <laughs> There's so much going on that not one person or team or manager or group or department or business unit can catch it all. Yeah. It's crazy. And it just, it grows to this scale that 
it's bigger, too big to fail. Yeah. You know, the whole thing with the <clears throat> meltdown and now it's in the news again. Like yep. they've just got so much going on that it doesn't really matter how clean they do it. It's just the fact that there's so much going on. It's there, it doesn't matter. They'll, yeah. they'll be fine. So I saw that firsthand. Like this place is that kind of scare you? It does a little bit. Yeah. 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 Like, does it still scare you as like a consumer and not even being directly in the middle of it, but you know, those, I mean, I'm sure well, over the course of time, they probably tied it up a little bit. You think maybe, I don't yeah. know. But I also think that, you know, if you're out selling hot dogs in a, in a uh, stadium and you drop a couple hot dogs here and there, it's not going to be the end of your business. That's kind of like the same thing, right? They're sloshing some, all this stuff around and it's just so massive and big that my brain can't comprehend trillions of dollars or multi high hundreds of billions of dollars. I, when I look, I can't comprehend. Nobody can like mm-hmm. when you think about minutes and hours and how many million hours I, I got these scales just blow your mind. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe it's acceptable that they slosh some stuff around and ruin some stuff every now and then. So maybe. for my company and my <laughs> business, that's absolutely a straight way to go out of business quickly. Yeah. Because you're not having accesses of, mm-hmm. High billions or low yep. trillions of dollars. So then in 2013, this is, you know, this is 13 years in, then my son was born. <laughs> and I took off for two years, stayed home with him and kind of got him going and got him up and moving. And then uh, went back to work with my buddy at his mortgage company and started as helping him out with some processing and then getting my license and jumping back into the origination side. Yeah. So. Since about 2013, 20, well, no, about 20 into 2014 is when I got licensed and got right back into it, got, got going again. So, and then, uh, 2018, I worked, I worked at his company until 2018. And then I opened this one in middle 2018 and I've been here ever since. What do you think the hardest part it has been for you as a broker owner coming from like not being the person who owns the company to being the owner? Like what is the biggest jump that you feel like are the most difficult tasks that you've had switching from being an originator to the man? Well, I feel like there's not much difference between the two because as an originator, I was hundred percent commission and nobody was bringing me anything. I had to go get it and go find it and go make my way as a salesperson or, you know, business owner, really. I mean, to call yourself whatever. I mean, if, if you get hundred percent commission and, your your business owner at that point your own business your personal business so and if you don't bring it it's not coming it's not, any other it's way it's not there yeah yeah I, right I've had some months where I'm like oh boy mm-hmm. um um I need to I need to step it up a bit and I think it's it's the same thing it's just on a on a different scale yeah you know the numbers just evolve it's the same the percentages might be close but the actual numbers wind up being bigger and yeah. different so that makes sense and you know just <clears throat> keeping keeping your hands on everything too and trying not to let not to give away too much responsibility to where I'm not in the middle of it yeah. and kind of catching problems and making things better and revising processes and making sure that our customers are seen and heard and taken, taken care, care of and, yep. and with a good customer service and our real estate partners, you know, making sure that they're taken care of and we're doing, doing right by them. And helping them do things, you know, yeah, because are... that's a that's a different aspect to it altogether. Is the as the relationships with real estate mm-hmm. with with realtors? Well, I've told people before, this sounds a lot worse than it than it really is. But our our in client is really kind of our secondary client. Yeah, 
the primary client is our real estate our, agents. Our, our realtors. Yeah. That's who we're here to serve and take care of and plug into and help and be a resource for because they're the ones that have the opportunities in the buyers. People don't call us first when it comes to getting a house. And I don't think that a lot of people really realize that is the fact that in the mortgage industry, you're your direct to buyer doesn't happen very often. Well, we can't afford to play in that playground. No, I mean, it would cost too much money. Quicken, yeah, and Rocket Mortgage, yeah. and you know all, all these mailers and things that go out companies. about you know can you refinance and and anything directly to the buyers or directly to you know consumer from a mortgage company is going to cost a lot of money to be able to do so. Yeah. But and if you can so build some noise. good relationships, right, with real estate agents then you can have repetitive business coming from them once you develop a rapport, a relationship, and prove to the real estate agent that you're not going to screw up their business. Nobody's going to trust you if you start messing with people's pockets. Yeah, and it's a different dynamic when it's all local, too, yeah. because I genuinely care about my agent's business and their closing and their experience that they're having with their client and us and me to them and like I, I want everybody to be happy. Yep. And I have a reputation to protect. Absolutely. So if something goes wrong and I just flip up both fingers and run the other way, that's gonna come back to haunt me. Yep. But if I'm sitting in a call center in Detroit somewhere and I mess up uh you know Karen's loan down here in, in Tampa. No big deal. And this Never real estate agent's him. mad at me, whatever. And I'll just <laughs> open up my next uh, email from the guy who texts us from the gas pump because they yep. saw the Quicken ad there. You know? <clears throat> yeah, it's very different when you, you know, every particular loan matters with keeping the clientele of that real estate agent. Mm -hmm. Because if you screw up once or have a really bad experience or somebody just really comes at the real estate agent talking about how terrible of a recommendation that particular loan officer is, you'll probably never get business from mm -hmm. them again. Yeah, You're just shutting off another valve yeah. uh, for your own income and for a relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's also another thing is like also having so many different real estate agents that you can be relatively close with um, because sometimes too many open valves, the, you're going to start having leaks. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that's a constant battle that um, – some real estate agents or some loan officers don't get as close as I particularly do with my realtors, I feel like, mm -hmm. um, because I like to be, you know, pretty, pretty close with continu con continuous calls, text messages involved in their Facebooks oh, yeah, just and their Instagrams. And right. Staying present, like staying a, relative. Yeah, just be there, be around. Yeah. You're not going to bug them, but when you need me, I'm here. If I can entertain you a little bit and tell you a funny story about something that happened with one of my buyers or one of my borrowers or whatever the case and keep you entertained, then great. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to make sure that I'm relevant at all times, which is part of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think we may seem that maybe that's where the sales skills kick in is to the realtor relationship, yeah. right? Instead of the borrower, because when we get to the borrower, I feel like we're consultants now. Yep. And we're like professional advisors. When we're to the agents, it's, hey, what are you doing? Check out what we've got here. Let me help you so you can go sell this. Let me show you how to do this. Let me teach you how to do this. Let me show you different ways, different ways you didn't think about. Let me tell you about this product. Have you considered, you know, we're just there to help with ideas and help keep them motivated. And I feel like that takes two different hats, right? Like the, I feel like the person I am with 
the real estate agent is a very different person than who I am with the buyer. Mm-hmm. Buyer is very business oriented, very professional, at least until they start to bring down barriers as to who their personality is. You're not going to see me start popping off with jokes left and right, Yeah, you know, and try to make a buyer that I just got on the phone with laugh. Yeah. Real Cause hard. who knows what they're dealing with? Cause you don't know. You're not, you're not ready for that. If they're very analytical and not looking for a buddy, um, you know, you can turn off that relationship quite quick and they don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, so my relationships with my real estate agents, they know my true personality. I'm kind of myself all the time. And I'm, I'm a goofball <clears throat> constantly. And I'm, I try to keep that as fun as possible with those serious conversations, mm-hmm. but I'm going to, it's like working in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're not you're different when the server comes out, but when you're back in the kitchen, it's a fun time. Everybody's exactly. hanging out, and you know, it's, it's exactly it's friendly. So you got to be able to switch those hats, and if you can, if you can't do that, then you know you're going to have a tough time being able to both keep relationships with the real estate agents and keep the business interested from your clients that are actually using you as your loan officer. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your team structure? Like, and you can you can elaborate on. From the beginning to end, if you want. Of course. So originally when we started, um, when I started uh, with being an originator, I was kind of doing everything myself. And coming into a completely different industry and not knowing the ins and outs of it yet and learning as I went, I started to realize quite quickly how much goes into being a loan originator. I mean, there are so many different things that you have to keep a finger on all the time uh, and it was it was a di- it's a difficult profession it really is and I, and I found that out very quickly that you know there's there's a lot more of an analytical side to it it takes both sides of your brain yes. you know some jobs are all right brain some are all left brain but we need both functioning all the time all the time <laughs> you know, all the different. time you gotta put, turn on the the personality hat then you gotta go you know pop into a computer and turn on the analytical analytical side mm-hmm. and be good with those numbers so that you the information that you're giving to your clients are actually going to be accurate because mm-hmm. the second that they start to poke holes in a 1003 or in a in a you know some type of le that you send to them or a quote that you send to them you're done. Mm-hmm. You're done. If you have somebody that can Google something and make you look dumb, you're done. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of which I started to realize that I was a lot better with personal conversations, one-on-one explaining things, how loan products work, what particular type of down payments, what how, how to uh, kind of go around certain obstacles that might be in people's way of being able to purchase a home. And I wasn't the best at the analytical side. I wasn't the best on the computer side for follow-up emails, um, you know, document chasing is, is the bane of my existence. I, 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 it's just not something that I consider myself being able to be good at and being, being able to really focus on. And that's a huge part of the job. So we had another loan officer start at Swift. His name is Robert Filliger, um, and Robert's kind of a computer guru. He's really good with numbers. He's really good on the computer. He's fast about being able to get quotes and pre-approvals, and obviously that took time for him to be able to get to that point, and he's getting better as he continues to grow as a loan officer himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we were separate in our own entities of loan officers, I had a lot of people that I knew and relationships that I knew, and he knew how to do a lot of the pulling off stuff, but moving from an area that wasn't 
you know, he he didn't grow up here, so he didn't have a lot of these connections and things like that. So he didn't he didn't really have that all those connections that were going to help him being able to get his business off the ground. Mm-hmm. So we ended up having a conversation about how I feel like we are ultimately good together of what you're really good at and what I'm really good at. And together we would make a really, really good loan officer as a whole. Right. But why not do it as a team? Why not do it to where I'll have a lot of the one-on-one conversations. I'll be the outgoing, go to marketing stuff, do the podcast stuff, do the brokerage uh, presentations, keep all our business relationships with text messages and Instagram and Facebook and all of these touch points that we have with our with our clients, which is our real estate agents. Mm-hmm. And then you service the people that they end up sending into us for getting pre-approvals, chasing down documents, making sure we're updated with numbers, people get quotes, you know, checking on our emails for the most part to make sure there's no cracks lost. You know, nothing falls through the cracks. Mm-hmm. So because of which, we've actually kind of turned it into a, a pretty uh, pretty successful um, way of being able to look at it. And I'll tell you, our realtors that we work with, our realtors love it. Yeah. They really do well, enjoy it. I mean, it. hopefully they appreciate the fact that there's two, two of sets us. of eyeballs. Yeah. On it, and one, one of you is always going to be in tune or available or can you do this? If we can't get you, I'll get you. And then you're there and it's like... That's a good Since thing. We have started this podcast. I've gotten four different phone calls from four different realtors. And I know that every one of those realtors called Robbie as soon as they did. I didn't pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. And I know he answered the phone. Yeah. I'm not worried about it because I, I know that it's something else, another touch point that they can have. And I was just doing a broker presentation literally yesterday. I went into um, Century 21 Beggins on, in Brandon. And I did a presentation on VA loans. Um, and as I was talking to some of the partners that we've had in there, they, one of them bragged about the fact that you get a two-for-one discount. <laughs> and, I, and I love that, you know, in the aspect of knowing that you have somebody available. If I'm on vacation, uh, that's a lot of times the feedback we get from realtors is the fact that the communication between my loan officer and I is not that great. Yeah, They don't answer phone calls after a certain time. They don't text message me back right away. They don't return my emails within 24, 48 hours, whatever the case. You know, they don't have a touch of a good relationship with my buyer. My buyer doesn't necessarily trust them or they they're they're very short with my buyer. So they don't really feel as if they have a lot of personality. And these are all things that I've heard in my conversations and you're hearing the same thing. So it's very that all of those statements are very repeatable across the market. So this allows us then to, for me to be more of the personalized touch, one-on-one conversations, taking my time with explaining how these loan products work. When we come into hurdles or things that are going to trip us up for being able to get a pre-approval, I can drastic, I, I, I can slowly break down how to overcome it and be able to take my time on the phone while he's knocking out other numbers and other things. I, my conversations are not rushed. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing that buyers really appreciate is the fact that I'll take whatever time that I need to to be able to walk you through the problems that are in front of us, which is great. Yeah, People all the time say, I, I'm, I can't believe you just spoke with me for an hour and a half at 730 at night. You know what I mean? And, and, and sometimes that has happened. Um, does all of that grow fruit? 
Do you, you know, does every person that I take an hour, hour and a half with end up getting a loan? No. But the realtor remembers. Mm-hmm. The realtor remembers the fact that I, you know, brought so much time and effort into trying to be there for their buyer. So then the next time they actually have a qualified buyer, a lot of times they send it right back to us. Yeah. And that's what we are building with a lot of these partners is a relationship of knowing that we care just like they care. Because if they don't feel like they, they have somebody that's going to care about their their buyers and closing on deals, then they they don't feel like they're part of our team. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, great processors. We have the office manager that's always available. People love Katie. People love Allie. Uh, people love the fact that they can call me. They can call Robert. They can call Katie. Or they can call Allie. Pretty much any time throughout the day. And we're going to be able to get you answers. Yeah. And, you know, I think... The proactive, I don't like inbound phone calls. Mm-mm. I don't want people calling us. Mm-mm. You know, I want to call them, tell them what's up, give them the answer, answer their questions, and then send them on their way and take care of everything. Once. You know what's actually helped me the most with that, with the inbound call aspect of it, is the videos that we did for the step-by-step. Mm-hmm. So every mm-hmm. time that we, just for those who have never used this or whatever the case may be, every time that we get to a new step of, the 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 process a milestone know, every milestone mm-hmm. essentially um every single milestone we've already generated a, a video that goes directly out to people's emails and says hi you've now completed this milestone congratulations this is what's the next milestone this is what it entails this is what to keep an eye out for and the next time you complete that milestone we'll send you another video mm-hmm. i get feedback from that from both buyers and realtors because we also send it to their real estate agents right. all the time. Yeah. They're like, well, I, lo- I got it, your it, video. It's very I love effective. It. And I'm like, which one are you talking about? Cause there's 11 of them. Mm-hmm. So which one are you talking about this time? You know, like I, I don't even have to worry about fielding the income call in incoming calls of like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Because in the videos I'm already telling them. Yeah. Because it's that's the same um, process. You know, that touches where we're, we're Obviously, we're big into video here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love been doing video since like pretty much the same time I've been doing loans. Really, it's the way of the future. Yeah, and I mean we're in the future yeah. because I've been saying that since 2015, and uh, that's one of those aspects of video marketing that you can put into your business. That's a tool for your business and your processes, not just marketing. And you know, when we do our video marketing classes and stuff, I give people examples of. How can you use video? Yeah, you don't have every video doesn't have to be a YouTube video or has to be a you know Instagram reel or TikTok. It doesn't. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what else do you have? How do you communicate with your past clients? How do you communicate with your current prospective buyers? How do you communicate with even your team if you're a team leader? And it's so hard to wrangle ten or fifteen agents in the same room for more than a few minutes (laughs) because they're all doing stuff. So how do you communicate and how do you stay present with them and, you know, and, and the people that you deal with? Those private, privately shared videos, I think, are huge mm-hmm. and super impactful because you're helping, those videos are helping push your business forward and push that process along. And that's exactly why we designed them like that is to say, here's what just happened. This is what's about to happen. Yep. And then we'll go from there. And all it is is that small little touch point mm-hmm. and it stops so much of your business from continuously calling you all day long. Yeah. Cause we're For, doing and add to that, the weekly call out saying, here's where we are. Yep. By the way, you're going to get these videos as things happen, but 
here's where we are from person to person, everything going okay for you. And it, it has helped me not have to be able to field those calls. Like it's a, it really is the definition of working smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. I did all of those videos in one day Yeah, and and they have stopped probably hundreds of incoming calls from Mm -hmm. where, where are we? What are we doing in the, where am I, where's my loan? Yeah. You know, what's part of the process? What else do you guys need from me? A lot of these things are already answered in these emails that people get nonstop. As long as you can set the right expectation. Yeah. If you can set the right expectations at the very beginning of the call, which also helps with taking your time with having these initial calls with people, with building a rapport and letting them know you're going to get a video at every step throughout the process once we go on our contract, that really did help. Mm-hmm. And then they and then they literally love to tell me that they, they love the videos. Yeah. They love them. I hear that a lot. Yeah, because a lot of people pay attention to them, and you can see the view counts on them. Like they're they're being watched. Yeah, you know, they're being seen, and the whole things are being watched. And they're not long; they're like a minute, two yeah. minutes. Just it's like I tell people: pretend like you're leaving a voicemail, instead you're just talking to a camera. Yep, that's the only difference. So yeah, that's that's very uh, very effective. So you guys, Robbie and David, you're the rad team. The rad team. Excellent name. So that's how they can reach you, radteam at swifthm.com mm-hmm. when they need you. Yeah, and a lot of people um, will still email me all of my emails yeah. automatically forward to our group so mm-hmm. that Robbie doesn't miss out on anything Yeah, uh, because he's predominantly the person who's answering the emails and replying back. But well, we I talk think all day long about any, who emails us, whatever the case may be. Any loan officer, realtor, agency-type person, um, salesperson in general – all face that exact problem. Yep. They say, you know, you get too much on your plate and your prospecting falls away. And now you're not generating new business and because you got to take care of the business that you brought in. So that puts you on that yo-yo effect mm-hmm. on a chart where you close a lot, then you fail, then you close a lot, then you fail. And, you, and every, one of the, every one of those people deal with that. But when you're able to split it off and build a team behind you to help you stay consistent Mm -hmm. that that says so much you know you can you can spread your wings so much more and get breathing room because if you're focused on one thing and the next person's focused on the next thing all you have to do is focus on that one thing which is generating business and talking to realtors and all that i feel bad sometimes when i i i hit robert with five leads at the same time you know what (laughs) i mean i'm like sorry i know that i know that i know the amount of work that goes into you know generating and, and starting five pre-approvals mm-hmm. you know like real quick some of them are not going to pan out right you know you can get five leads and two of them can be non-qualified buyers at this time mm-hmm. but you still want to be able to take care of the conversation of a, talking about how to get them to qualify buyers so i still don't even try to rush that so if, when people have people that are that they know their credit card their credit score is not passable uh, you know 500 credit scores whatever the case may be like real real out there circumstances I'm trying to buy in a year. A lot of loan officers won't feel that call. Mm-hmm. A lot of loan officers are like, if, if you're not ready to go, I'm really not going to spend my time because of the fact that I have the emailing and the document chasing and, and all these other things that yeah, it's going to be a lot of tie into it. Management on their part, but because of the fact that I've got Robbie, I'll field every call. And that helps you get a longer pipeline longer relationships, longer, you know, timeline of being able to get people over their, over their hump into their house. Yeah. And we're not going to, 
unrealistic expectations of thinking that every person's a buyer because they're not. Mm-hmm. Every person might need some additional steps before they become that. But if they don't know, then they're never going to turn into business. For yeah, you. right. You have to. There's a lot of nurturing that has to happen. A lot for a lot of people of handholding. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I totally get that. Well, hey, why don't we crack into the goodies that you brought yes. and take a take a minute, and then um, when we come back, we're going to get into the headlines. That sounds great. All right. Hey, thanks for bringing the drinks. Of course. Nice. What are, what is in there? So we got some uh, four roses bourbon. Oh man. Yeah, I think you're good. Almost knocked myself out there. <laughs> Four Roses bourbon. There we go. Cheers. That's some of my favorite stuff. Delicious. Mm. All right, so we are getting into the next segment of the podcast. Absolutely. We're going to come up with a unique name and call it Headlines. I like it. <laughs> so unique of you. So I just went in here and I Googled florida real estate news okay let's see what they say fox business six days ago is talking about florida's red hot real estate market cooling down gone of the day gone are the days of bidding wars the broker says so let's look at that for a minute Hmm. what else do we have here strength or conflict of interest florida lawmakers real estate ties spark debate so we have a lawmaker who is an agent and he's probably doing something shady i think (laughs) sounds like it. we'll find out (laughs) Local local rent control banned in Florida's new affordable housing law. Let's jump in there. What was the headline again? Local rent control banned in Florida's new affordable housing law. Mm. What are we saying here? Chris Gollin out of Tallahassee, Florida. Largest ever support for housing in state history. That's what Governor Ron DeSantis called Senate Bill 102 when he signed it into law on Wednesday. He certainly corrected it. It's an ambitious initiative. But though it passed the legislature and received the governor's signature, some fear Florida's housing crisis is still not yet adequately addressed, or rather that the sections of SB 102 give the ball to the wrong players. Chief hmm. function here is to devote $711 million of state funds into affordable housing initiatives over the next decade. An unprecedented expenditure, it also provides government incentives to developers who undertake affordable housing projects. But where it loses some of but where it loses some is that it bans any rent control measures by local governments, something that many Floridians have pushed for at the city and county levels in recent years. So rent control, the way I understand it, is like New York, I think, has rent control. And you live in an apartment and your landlord can't raise the rent more than a certain percentage a year or something like that. Over I don't the know the, the time. full details because yeah. I never had to deal with it, but that's typically what, basically what that is. So <clears throat> this bill is saying that we're going to not let local municipalities enact any local rent control laws, which mm. you can look at both ways. I was going to say From you can definitely see capitalist that landlord investor perspective. Get that rent control out of here. Yeah, I want market rent. I want what the market will bear. Will bear. But from the you know struggling family who who has a problem with income, yep, in affording a house, they need help. So. It also, I mean, it's also interesting or or a different perspective of thinking of like from the loan officer perspective, it is going to force a lot of people to looking into purchasing. Could be. Because of the aspect of, well, of thinking that, you know, uh, uh, people already know and already come to us a lot and go, I can't believe 
believe how high my rent is. Mm-hmm. Can't believe that they're trying to charge this amount for just this. It's mm-hmm. always that. Yeah. It's always, can you believe that it's this amount for just this small amount of, you know, two bedroom or one bedroom, one bath or whatever the case may be. <laughs> That's the constant, you know, message that I hear from people that are trying to persuade or trying to find out how they can purchase a home. Yeah. And every realtor and loan originator all has some kind of go-to rent versus own. Either presentation or bullet points that they can get into. Absolutely. Huge talking point for our industry. So that's interesting. So that's something happening up there in Tallahassee. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting uh, headline. We don't really deal with too many um, rent control places around here. I've I've never run across it myself. No. So I'm not educated enough to know if that's even going on anywhere. And really dive into it, because if people are renting, then it usually means they're not talking to us. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, okay. sweet nectar of the gods. Oh, okay. Well, we can only read that if we subscribe, so I guess I'm not. And this one has a server <laughs> error. Come on, Google. Get with me here. Here's one. This sounds like a... Deadly headline, seven Florida cities that could be heading for a housing crisis. You got to hit a scary like sound effect with that. <laughs> you got to do that in like the, the demon voice. <laughs> seven Florida cities that could be headed for a housing crisis. Christ. <laughs> they should have never given me this thing. No, absolutely not. I've tried to I've tried to be tame with it because it could get out of hand real fast. You know, with just the headphones. I on. like to leave voicemails in that voice. Exactly. That's how we uh that's how what if you were one of your debt creditor collections? <laughs> yeah. And that's how you used to call customers. <laughs> this is a chance to collect our debt. Florida seems to be a state that people are always flocking to and never leaving with its temperate weather, great beaches, and lots of excellent attractions. However, even Florida is feeling the results of market forces, which are increasing mortgage rates, driving up home prices, and thus driving out people. In fact, the Florida cities on this list are showing alarming signs that could be pointing towards a housing crisis. Mm. In order to find the Florida cities showing case for cause for concern, Go banking rates looked at the largest 200 cities in terms of total housing units and some crucial factors, such as the percentage of mortgages that are between 30 and 90 plus days delinquent and homeowner and renter vacancy rates. Data was drawn from the CFPB, the CPB, and RealtyTrack. That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is uh, our regulator. Yep. And the Consumer Protection Bureau and RealtyTrack. Here are seven most likely to end up with a housing crisis. Number seven, Pembroke Pines, South Florida. Percentage of mortgages delinquent 90 days, 0.7. Hollywood, Florida. Homeowner vacancy rate, well, excuse me. Homeowner vacancy rate in Pembroke Pines, 0.9. Delinquent mortgages 90 days plus 0.7. That's nothing. 0.7 is not bad. Hollywood, Florida. Vacancy rate 1.6. Delinquency 0.6. This is a, I don't know about this, go banking rates. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. Jacksonville, Florida, homeowner vacancy, 2%. What's the delinquent rate on, on number one? 0.6. So let me just, Jacksonville, <clears throat> Miami, Gainesville, Fort Lauderdale, and Orlando. They're all. Orlando would be a big deal. 0.7 is the lowest 
percentage of this whole entire list. What's the highest percentage of delinquency rate? That's, that's what I meant. The oh, highest, highest, highest. point seven. Yeah, Orlando's <clears throat> home vacancy rate. So they're saying that five percent of the properties in Orlando are vacant. <clears throat> I wonder how deep they dive into second homes and VRBOs. And that's what I was going to say. Vacation rentals and things like that. Because it doesn't scream crisis. That screams that a lot of people are using investment properties and secondary homes to be able to go to Disney World as often as possible. To me, this screams clickbait. Go banking rates. I don't yeah. know about that article. We're on to you. Go banking yeah, rates. Yeah, I'm not going to let that go. So <laughs> the other ones that I wanted to talk about is the uh, the Case-Shiller S&P. Case-Shiller Index came out recently. Mm-hmm. And the Case-Shiller, what it does is it looks at a um, – it's an index of housing activity. Talking about property appreciation. Is it going up, down? What's it doing? Is very focused on in the industry. Case-Shiller is yep. a big number. Um so what we're hearing here is home prices cool in January, even falling, even falling in some cities. Case Schiller says home prices cooled in January up to only 3.8% nationally than they were a year earlier. That's positive though, right? Yeah. 3.8% is still just at the rate that it was up. increasing. That's not normal. Yeah. The rates that they were we increasing have to get that out of normal. our head. Yeah. We have to get that out of our head. Two and a half percent rates are not normal. 20% appreciation is not normal. Never going to see that again. Yes. I mean, if we do, uh, it, it'll be a real, I mean, this was a one-off. This was a really rare circumstance. And I and I cannot stress enough how many people just cannot let go of the fact that the interest rates were at 2.75 or 3% and mm-hmm. they didn't take advantage of it or they couldn't find or they a house it again, or they wanted it and again. it's not there anymore. I'm like, I understand that the $450,000 pre-approval that I gave you was great. I absolutely know that you were put your head and, and you put your, your dream home right in front of you and you couldn't afford it because you wouldn't go $75,000 over asking price. Because that's what was the market at that particular time. We had people that were way over the asking price at that time, to where the average person really couldn't couldn't really compete. Oh, with it was those so offers. tough. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I'm glad that's over. But they gotta let was, it go. That was such a stressful time to be a buyer. Is you know going in and losing so many. I mean, how many people gave up? the search and just decided to sit where they're at for a year. Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of them come back and get back in the game, but I would say that's where it is. Why it is that we're busy now is the fact big that part of it is the fact that a lot of those people that couldn't afford the $25,000 over asking price homes that they were looking at at that particular time came back and said, okay, David, you know, is now a better time in the market to be able to get involved? Or now can I, you know, do I have to come out of pocket that significant amount of money right. to be able to buy a house? No, you don't have to, but the pre-approval amount that you're going to have is significantly lower because the interest rate is almost triple. So this uh, report's talking about um, the home price. So the 3.8 that it's up nationally this year is down from 5.6 in December. So it's it's... The trajectory is still positive, but it's not as as much steep of an as it was in December. <clears throat> Prices have been falling for seven straight months, but the decline was a bit smaller in January. That was likely due to a brief drop in mortgage rates and a resulting in a jump in sales. Mortgage rates have felt like a yo-yo for the last six, eight months, yeah. where they're just kind of 
what day do you want to lock? Well, okay. <laughs> it really depends on the day. It really does. Yeah. You know, and week yeah. week to week they'll change by a quarter, and then the following week they'll drop mm-hmm. a quarter, and yeah. it's like we just have what the market gives us. Yeah, you know? that's what's and, here. And trying to explain that to clients a lot of times is very difficult if you don't phrase it right. In the aspect of you know knowing knowing that they're going to get shopped, knowing that they're going to get sent information. If the, if you, we pull their credit for something that they're looking into trying to get a purchase or, or a pre-approval for, they start to get calls from everywhere if they don't do that opt-out pre-screening. Mm-hmm. If they don't have that and the pre-approval is over 400000 they're going to get bombarded yeah. with all yeah, kinds of different mortgage companies. That's the trying article. To I want to read it. an article saying that they stopped that nonsense. That's, that, like that's the one that we would love to be able to <laughs> yeah. see. Yeah, I just crazy. had one buyer and uh, that we just got pre-approved for $1.2 million. This gentleman ended up getting calling me and go, David, I have never been berated with so many different phone calls and text messages because of the aspect of so many people wanting his loan. Mm-hmm. And they... They are willing to say whatever oh, about me. They are shady. I've had people about call me. and say, hey, I'm calling from Swift Home Mortgage. Your file was assigned to me. I just needed to clarify a few things. Could you tell me your name? And your and then they just jump right back into it under total false pretense. Yep. And I'm all for open market competition. Like, I get it. I'm capitalist all the way through. I understand it. That's okay. I don't like to have to deal with the shadiness yes. that, you, that comes along with that. And I feel like with all the privacy laws and everything that we, we have to adhere to as a as a originator or a bank or a lender or an institution, privacy is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yet the credit reporting, the credit bureaus can just turn around and sell that information to whoever wants it. Somebody else. What is that? Selling your secrets. How is it any of your business that I applied for a mortgage and now my not, phone's going to ring shouldn't be. Trigger shouldn't leads be. are, they're, they're dirty. Yeah. I think that it's not a good way to go. Um, I don't know. I just, he sent me a screenshot of 46 text messages that he received in a day and over 45 calls. All a, from to one person. And what are, are they not worried about the... Uh, Redundancy? Escaping me. The do not call list. Like, are they not worried about that? No. Are they not getting sued? Are they not getting fines over stuff like that? Because I know people that would go crazy if they receive 46 text messages. Oh, my gosh. And texting is even more strict than phone calls. Luckily, this particular buyer, we've helped him purchase prior to. He's not going anywhere. I know that. He's made it very much uh, aware to me. It's like you've been there for every phone call, all of the questions. You don't know what you're getting into when you decide. Especially if they're going to be shady enough to misrepresent. And he's he's already had some some tricky issues using different real estate agents. And he's like, no, you know, just by knowing that no two real estate agents are exactly the same. Some of my experiences with some of the other agents that he's worked with in different areas were not the same as the first time that he bought a house with us using a particular agent that we have a partnership with. Mm -hmm. They loved her and then switched over to a different because of a different circumstance and different area that they were buying in had like two bad experiences with two agents so they also know that it could be the same yeah, with mortgage same thing, right? and they're like we're not going to take in any chances but they've been sending over text messages of like funny memes that he does to reply he doesn't even give them a time of day he sends <laughs> funny memes back to them as a response of like 
you know, Labouf uh, no longer Labouffing or whatever the case may be, or, or like the, you know, whatever the case, any kind of funny meme or offensive meme that he could do just to make <laughs> it a joke and know that that person doesn't stand a chance. Um, it's, nobody's probably even seen him. Probably goes to a computer. Probably directly. But. Miami, Tampa, and Atlanta again saw the hottest annual price gains of the top 20 cities. Miami prices were up 13.8, Tampa prices were up 10.5, and Atlanta was up 8.4. All 20 cities, however, reported lower prices in the year ending in 2023 versus year ending, year ending in 2022. So that's yeah, that's a lot to be said there. Homeowners nope. or home buyers may see more flexible sellers in the spring market coming up. But there's still too few homes available for sale. Mortgage lending may also tighten in light of pressure on the banking system. May, might, could, lots of that. You yep. know, I'm not I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be an economist. So all I know is what's happening in the real world right Absolutely. now. And I feel like um, our prices, even though they're 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 not going twenty percent a year, they're steady. And I don't I've always said that I feel like Florida has a long way to go for the bottom to drop out of Florida yeah. because they're, we're such a built-in destination for people. And there's it's just such a – there's so much going on that is going to draw people here. Political, non-political, weather, taxes, financial. Water. Health, like all of it, <laughs> like so many people. Boating, fishing, so vacation, like the dream. We're not – uh, you know, we're not invincible to market forces by any means, but I feel like some of these bubble cities where they're talking about here, like, you know, uh, Atlanta, well, no, Atlanta's doing well with us, but things like Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, San Diego, <laughs> San Jose, those really over grossly overinflated markets. We've had a lot of buyers coming from California and from New York mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. Those are a lot of people that are moving down to try to avoid a lot of those state taxes. Yeah. And so that's cool. High influx well, areas. That is a brief look at headlines, which is what's happening today, which are like a lot of two of which we were like, mm. Mm, maybe. <laughs> I don't know so much. Yeah, I know. Well, that's that's the news for you. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you clicking? Don't know who to trust. Who, who are you reading? What is that? Who are you going to trust? Is that real? Subscribe and I'll tell you. Five dollars a month. I like that. <laughs> All right, so let's. I want to get into a little bit of discussion around Veterans Administration and VA loans. Um, we could sit here and talk for six hours about VA loans. All day. And things related to VA loans, but I want to talk about a few things that you might not hear all the time. So you, when you you told me that when you got when you got started as a home buyer. Mm -hmm that you weren't aware of the benefit that you had riding around in your back pocket to go and convert to a home buyer at mm -hmm. that time to a homeowner. So how does that play into your peers in all branches in the service? I mean, you, you got experience with Marines, obviously, but yeah. I'd imagine that this is probably the same across all services. For the most part. What do you think, how good of a job does the administration do for active duty people or veterans that are coming out transitioning or, or even that are out? What kind of resources do they provide to educate about finances and homeownership? So I tell people all the time um, whenever I do VA presentations and stuff with brokerages is that there really isn't a time 
throughout my entire career in the Marine Corps that anybody ever sat us down and said, hey, let me explain to you how to use one of the largest benefits that you're going to have for putting on this uniform. Mm -hmm. There was never a time that anybody even mentioned or talked about how to find out resources. The only time that you ever really get that type of knowledge is from a specific leader that is looking out for specific people. Mm-hmm. Or a leader Almost that's like a, like a men, maybe a mentor, like a mentor that you had in yeah. while you're in. Yeah. I, I've had so many different leaders or mentors or so many different leaders throughout my military career that, you know, some of them we really could tell they cared a lot about us. Um, and you can tell the differences as soon as one switches from one to the other. You kind of end up, you know, picking out the best of the leadership that you end up having. And then when you become a leader, trying to instill those practices into your leadership style. But really the only people that ever dove dove into any of that information about finance, proper ways to save money, uh, credit, you know, some of these conversations did happen, but only because that particular leader felt as if it was important information to junior Marines to know. Mm -hmm. Not because it was on the docket for what the Marine Corps wanted you to teach. Right. It's not an out. Pro- it's not a class you have to take to get out. No, or a certificate, certification, or certificate that you get to prove that you have been taught this. Absolutely, or not. like a credit or something. Like that. Yeah. All of these, and the, and the military really makes it difficult for you to be able to find sources of information because there's so many there's there's so many .gov websites. Mm-hmm. There's so many sources. Yes, but you really have to be an analytical person to be able to know where to go on these websites and they don't make it easy to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So because of which I like to be able to be a resource for veterans of being able to answer a lot of the questions that they never talked about. They've never no one's ever told them that they have 0% down on a VA loan. Nobody's ever told them that you know, depending on their disability percentage, the funding fee on the front side of the loan could be completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, putting five percent down could knock out knock out one point three percent of the funding fee. If you have a certain disability percentage, you might not even have a funding fee. All those different individual nuances, and that a lot of times how I I get a lot of my business is because once I have a conversation with another veteran and they know that a I know what I'm talking about with a VA loan, with a conversation they've never had with somebody else. Um. And on top of which, I, f- I give them like more of an instruction conversation, a guiding conversation instead of like, this is why you want to do your VA loan with me, mm-hmm. you know, that type of stuff. It helps. Yeah. It helps drastically be able to build a rapport. Well, I think the way that that's set up, the government didn't do it on purpose, but no. they've created kind of a, a cottage market for people like us and other veteran advocate type organizations or companies, whatever you want to, whatever it is, corporate or not, nonprofit, either way, it's created an opportunity for us to step up and provide that education and define a path for them yep. to, to hit, hit that goal and just tell them what's there. You know, this is, this saves you so much money. Like this, you're not going to have to come up with tens or twenties or forties of thousands of dollars to be able to get into a house. Yeah. You're making money. You got credit. Let's get rid of that down payment thing. And well, I think a and- lot of a lot of issues that come up with the VA loan from veterans is the fact that they believe that they have to deal directly with the VA mm-hmm. in order to be able to get this loan product. Right. Because other things you do 
have to deal with the most VA. of the time. And I feel like you these, you know, all the stories that I've heard about veterans dealing with the VA hospital and VA medical care, if they've had to go through anything like that, they automatically equate Turn in off. their minds to the VA loan is going to be like it is at the VA hospital. Defense barrier, <laughs> way up. I don't want anything to do with it. No. I'm not ready to go down that Especially road Especially if they have their disability and they know what it took to get that disability percentage, mm-hmm. they don't want to deal with that again. Yeah. You know, and uh, if there's nobody there to help them understand that the VA doesn't really have anything to do with the funding of the loan because they delegate the lending authority to people like us. Yep. Where the lenders were able to give the uh, pass the loan through and the VA basically just insures that loan on the books and that money doesn't come directly from the government. It comes from the lender. Yeah. So they that is a huge step of being able to reassure people when you start talking to veterans that are look interested in getting into a VA loan is the fact that if you reassure them that we don't have to, you, I'm, you're not going to get calls from the VA to set up an appointment to talk about your finances. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not going to be the case. Right. Like you do, and we're going to get it done in 12 days. Exactly. It's not going to take you 90 days. To yeah. Do this this isn't thing. something that I'm trying, you know, I'm a year later, you're still trying to find out where your pre-approval is mm-hmm. like your VA disability percentage. Yeah. Um, this is something that can be direct con- to consumer, a 24-hour process if I can get you a full breakdown of what type of VA options you're going to have if you're willing to be able to, you know, have an open conversation and let me in a little bit on seeing documentation of your income and assets. Yeah, that's absolutely the truth. And I feel like the veterans are... We, we, you and I know this and we live it and breathe it, but the VA loan is not treated as a premier first place, top of the heat loan. In my eyes, it is. It's my absolute favorite loan to do. We're like, why? Because why? it's so beneficial to the veteran. And when you know what you're doing with them, it's, they're easy. They're yeah. not, they're not a big, huge struggle. And I don't know where this, well, I do know where it comes from. It's just old holdovers, like all that old knowledge that never old experience never went away. You know, that VA loan lifestyle. 30 years ago is very different from the VA yeah. loan today. It's a different, it's a different ball game and there's no problem whatsoever. And I, I just want veterans to understand that and know that because if you're going to be planning routes and staying somewhere and putting your family up, or even if you don't have a family paying rent and you got a benefit, why not use it? Make it an investment. There's The investment aspect of it really is interesting to me because, you know, active duty military gets stationed in a different place in between two to four years. Usually mm-hmm. with active duty, you can pop around. From well, right now we're in the middle of PCS season. Yep. You know, orders are coming through and people are starting to figure out what they're doing. And we're going to have some inbound people here and outbound people. So it's it's a constant flux yeah. in our community of people coming and going because of McDill. But if you're active duty... And you're popping around from duty station to duty station, and you knew, and I had you had knowledge about the VA loan. You have a susceptible amount of income, an acceptable amount of income, I should say, for a pre-approval for a home that you want to live in at one duty station. Some of these guys that really have the knowledge of the VA loan really take advantage of it and grow a certain amount of wealth by the time they get out of the military because they can continue to buy houses and continue mm-hmm. to rent them out. Yeah. It's something that I've seen actually one of my best friends growing up is in the air force. He uh, bought his first home in North Dakota from North Dakota, went to uh, 
um, Wyoming, bought a house there, rented out the North Dakota home. From there, bought a house in Louisiana, rented out the Wyoming home, and continuously be yeah. able to use this. It's a great way to, to, to grow advance. a portfolio. Absolutely. A portfolio. Now yeah. he's sitting at three, four homes that he's continuously pulling in income. And over the course of the market drop with the interest rates, he was able to refinance some of them out of VA loans into conventional loans at a low interest rate. Opening so is up a VA loan again. Opening up another yeah. VA, VA loan again. Mm -hmm. So it's like he just did it the right way. Yeah. And it's because of the fact that he had the right people telling him about how to take advantage of this great product. And he's going to be so much farther ahead. Oh, my gosh. When he gets light out, years. even, you know, when he's ready to retire. Light years away. It's going to be crazy. Or light years in front. Mm -hmm. You know, he's done it. He's done it several times, and now he's building a cabin in Georgia. I mean, uh, uh, he's doing things smart, but you don't have to necessarily make a lot of money over the course of a short amount of time to be able to be successful. Mm -hmm. If you take these little tiny increments of knowledge and apply them in the right ways with a, an acceptable amount of income to be able to get approval on the loans, then you can really grow your wealth or your, your portfolio much, much faster. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's just a, a prime example of somebody that doesn't have this 250, 300-year, uh, a K-year job but was able to make himself, you know, self-sufficient income coming in from additional amount of investment properties mm -hmm. that now are paying for themselves. Yeah. And if you can use the VA loan to do it, it's so much better. So much better. No PMI. No 20% down. No down payment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you got to follow the rules. I mean, you're not buying investment properties with VA loans, but eventually you'll turn that into an investment. Your exactly. cost of acquisition is so low that you're in the money nearly immediately. Yeah. yeah. So what's some advice that you would give to someone either coming out and separating or, you know, this, this could go two ways because it doesn't have to be military. It doesn't have to be a, a separation. It can be somebody coming out of college or high school or trade school or somebody getting ready to plant roots and stay in one spot for a while. Mm -hmm. What would you, what kind of advice would you give them about real estate, mortgages, planning, all kind of all encompass there? Uh, date the rate, marry the house. Um, if you are able to not pay rent to other entities, other um, other companies, and be able to get into a home as early as possible, you're going to set yourself up for the most amount of equity that you can have for other opportunities later. Coming out of the military or coming out of college, I'd say the faster you can get ownership underneath your uh, as a notch on the belt for where you live, the better opportunity you're going to set up for a future for additional equity, a different investment opportunities, uh, additional portfolio growth, uh, all of the things that uh, eventually make it a, um, a retirement scenario much easier. The earlier you start and being able to get this knowledge, the better. Every circumstance is different. So I would say that, you know, find a loan officer or a, or a loan originator that you're, you trust or, or, you know, reach out to where we can have an open conversation about where your status is now as opposed to where your status needs to be when you purchase. Yeah. What things need to change. Do you need to work on credit? Do you need to buy down your liabilities? Do you need to pay off credit card debt? Did you take out a $1,200 car payment, you know, when you were in college? And that's basically 50% of your income. Mm -hmm. It's a ah. super nice car, though. 
I hope you can live in it. You know, <laughs> I, I hope I hope it's got I hope it's got you know great um, long term. Yeah, it's fast. <laughs> fast way to be able to not have a house. <laughs> so having an open conversation about what steps you need to start knocking out to be able to get to the home ownership status as early as possible. And the only way of being able to know that is to either research yourself or to talk with a trusted either financial planner or loan officer. Mm -hmm. Those are really the two best type of people to be able to have a conversation with. I would feel to be able to know what most of your options are going to be. What, uh, what do you have to say to people that, that think that the process is too hard? Ooh, have a sip of bourbon after that question. Um, I feel like a lot of that is just a mental block mm -hmm. or an excuse. To be honest with you, I feel like a lot of the process is too hard just means that you don't have the drive to be able to take care of yourself. Because the only the process is only too hard because you don't want to take care of advantage or uh, taking care of taking care of yourself. Does that make sense? It does. Because Partially. <clears throat> I've got I've got another thing to think about on that though. So I think that what are you dealing with that makes it hard? Mm. Because some some situations are harder than others. Yeah. Right. When you have a person who's had fifteen jobs in the last two years with. Uh, you know, seven different bank accounts, half of them overdrawn to cover the others, mm -hmm. and but you got money in cash sitting around in your safe at home or in crypto or in wherever kind of weird account that's out there. And then you've got credit issues, collections, um, things that might have popped up that you maybe could have prevented from happening, mm -hmm. but you just kind of let it go. Robbing Peter to pay Paul? Yeah, partially. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's just basic raw numbers like you just you can't afford it and it is what it is you know you're, you're no less of a person over that it's just this $500,000 house is not going to be supported by your $30,000 income and maybe you're self-employed and maybe you write off too much in taxes or you don't claim anything that you get and you deal in cash or under the table yeah those are the ones all of those examples are the ones where it is hard and there are a lot of things that we're going to be asking for because of this situation that you're coming out of. Yep. You've cr inadvertently and unknowingly created a whole bunch of paperwork and requests that we need to solve these problems that are popping up on the loan approval mm -hmm. or to, to get to the point of a loan approval. I think those are the, it, it's, it's as easy as you make it. Letters mm -hmm. of explanation after letters of, ex of, of, of explanation, mm -hmm. VOEs, additional bank statements, additional gift letters. I mean, there's it, the, the trail of it continues to go. Yeah. Uh, and depending on the circumstances that people are in. So, yeah, I, I would say maybe the, the best advice for, you know, people that say that it's too hard is to try to dive into why. Yeah. Why? Right. Why do you feel this way? And well, let that, me kind of rebut it. That comes back to, I think you said it earlier about expectations, you know, because we can figure out pretty quickly what kind of loan we're going to get into yeah. at the stage of an application, especially at the state documents when they give all your stuff that we Absolutely. need. And if we can sit down and have a conversation and be like, listen, this isn't a cakewalk. Like there's going to be hurdles. There's going to be things that we need to get through. There's going to be some outside of the box thinking there's going to be some things that you're going to need to do but if you're on board I'm on board mm -hmm. and we're going to help get you there 
but you have to be reactive and you have to we're not going to ask you for stuff unless we need it we're not doing it for fun but if you don't have that conversation if you don't have it they're going to hate you hate you because you're going (laughs) to ask them 15 different things over 15 different days you are a nuisance yeah and because sometimes you know we're pretty good about asking for everything that we need right now up front but sometimes you get into things that you couldn't foresee Mm -hmm. sometimes you have a um ex-Jamaican police officer (laughs) who relocated to America and we're going to have to get a verification of employment from From Jamaica Jamaican police and the police department. That was uh, yesterday. Yeah. By the way, we're right in the middle of that now. We got it. It's done. But man, that was like, it it almost took a trip down there to get it done. At at the beginning of that, um, the borrower knew uh, that that was going to be a process because he obviously had dealt with the police that particular police department not the best on paperwork no right (laughs) they basically just said they're gonna tell me no from an employee from what 2017 or 2015 2015 and he sent in his brother and his sister to try to get that paperwork for him and the jamaican police department went no man no man (laughs) not gonna happen (laughs) yeah so things happen like that so we have to be real careful and we have to be crystal clear in the beginning like we're in your corner we're fighting for you. I'm gonna go through it with you, and we're gonna get you there. But you gotta, you gotta be on board. Too. You gotta be willing to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want me to be in the trenches with you, you gotta be able to get your boots wet. Yeah, a little bit. And and sometimes the circumstances of chasing down paperwork are gonna be way more detrimental or way more work than other people. Other people, some, I'm, I'm and I love to say this about VA as well is a lot of veterans within. Squared away. Four hours. Mm-hmm. I have every piece of documentation that yeah. I need. Yeah. Because it and and it's crazy how much I can tell by the rank that they have. Right away I'm gonna get this information. <laughs> yeah. If if I'm talking to an E five and above, um, I'm gonna get that documentation within twenty four hours, most of the time. They're on top of it. It's it and it's gonna be the easiest loan process that there is because I'll have all documents. Nothing's gonna be a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Or to the underwriter because everything's right in front of you at, from the very beginning. Yeah. Those loans, people are can't believe that we close in eleven days or we get a pre-approval. You know, we get we get full clear to close in eleven days, and they're like, "How you you people are amazing," and, and we really can can generate a great rapport with them. But it's because of how on top of it they really are mm-hmm. that makes our job easier yeah, to be able to absolutely. Do so. It's the experiences that we end up having with people that do not have all their documentation or their head on a swivel for all of the, how to get all that documentation and we have to handhold to be able to get all that that make it look like we're a worse experience because it's taking more time to do so. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that ends up being on the borrower, yeah. sadly. What's the, what's the craziest loan closing you, you can remember? Ooh. Um, was it probably SAP? It's probably SAP. Is it the one with the windows? Oh my gosh! Yes, we had we had a borrower who, um, during the inspection, found out that none of the windows in the entire home closed or opened. They were painted shut, completely. Landlord special shut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, on an inspection, there's no egress. There's no way to be able to get out in case of a fire, so they're never going to approve that. Mm-hmm. There was so much work that had to be done with this particular type of 
property or that that particular address uh, in order to be able to get that. So that was one hurdle. On top of which, he would submit application an application and pay stubs for a job that he had being a truck driver. And as soon as I would get those pay stubs, he would quit that job and start being a truck driver for somewhere else and not tell me. So I would assume that he's continuously driving trucks. We would get to a certain part of the loan process to be able to get an approval. My video would come out for the next step of congratulations. We got the appraisal in and then the underwriter would want a new bank statement or they would, the underwriter would want to get a VOE on his current truck driving company. They would call the company that he then he just submitted bank statements for or pay stubs for, and he no longer works there. He now works for, you know, such and such trucking company, which now is 1099. Classic fail. <laughs> you go from W-2 to 1099, you're restarting your two years. So basically had to make good with the W-2 company that he quit. Come back to work for them for the remainder of the contract so that way he could actually get the keys to the home continuously and actually get the actual the approval get all of that work done to the house to make sure the inspection was going to pass and then we finally got him clear to close and the sellers didn't show up <laughs> to the closing totally was under the impression that he would not be able to come through with being a clear to close and we're waiting to just collect his escrow so when we showed up the sellers and the seller's agent didn't even show up to the title company, which we had a scheduled closing for, for four and a half hours. I sat there with him and his father trying to explain that this is not my fault. Yeah. We got you the <laughs> clear. The money's the waiting. They got the money. They're it's waiting. here. Yeah. We, I have done my part and, and I got you to the finish line. I don't know why these people are not here. And it ends up being that they had to... The, the buyer's agent had to threaten litigation against the seller's agent and the seller because of the fact that we made our contingencies. And you were within date and it wasn't an expired date. contract. It was all agreed to. All, yeah. all legit and all on time. So for how much we had to work as a company, because, I mean, we had our processors, our office manager involved, you were involved. I mean, we had everybody involved in that transaction trying to bring it to the finish line. And we did. Mm -hmm. And we were very happy and proud of the fact that we were. And then the seller doesn't show up, which never expected. So yeah, they, um, that was on a Friday. And then by Monday after threatening litigation, they ended up signing. So what, it they happened. They still got what they agreed to. It, you know, they got their money. There's they no got benefit their sale. to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's but you know it should be said crazy. that that is that's the crazy one. But very typically they're not that crazy. No, you know it's very most of the time they're very clean cut, in out, run the thing, get it done. And I feel like people the associate one. the cost of property to how difficult the loan would be, and that for the most part is the opposite. I think it's an inverse relationship. Absolutely, mm -hmm. the easiest one of the easiest transaction that I have ever done in my career of being a loan originator was the $1.6 million home. VA loan, right? VA loan mm -hmm. that we sold, that we helped purchase. That was the easiest transaction across the board. And it went right back to exactly what I was talking about with the fact that this was a retired colonel, full mm -hmm. bird, yep. that came out with every piece of documentation from both his current job, the retirement and, and disability percentage, 
and everything we requested for documentation within 24 hours. Yeah. It was done. I had them that approval all the way up to 2.2 million within 24 hours of so us having our first conversation. Of those big fat loan sizes, that's relatively new in VA yep. for unlimited VA loan. Yep. So, you know, if you're shopping in the three millions, four millions, you can do a hundred percent financing VA loan backed by the VA, low interest rate, no PMI, all of that stuff. And, and not have to have price adjustments for jumbos. That's like the best that's like the best loan product in, in America. Period. In my opinion. That's Period. why when I hear people hate on them, I'm like, you guys you don't even know. <laughs> and, and that also goes along with certain properties that I see. Um, somebody's really excited about being able to, you know, look at different addresses and they say, hey, can I also get approval for a conventional loan? And I just want to go, why? Yeah. Why Why do you say yeah. that? Because this property that I really like isn't accepting VA loans. And I'm like, okay, either one of two things are happening there. Either one, there's something wrong with the property that there is real estate agent, the listing agent, doesn't feel as if it's going to pass inspections. Mm -hmm. And it's a large problem that's probably going to call the, cause the seller. And to make it clear, well. a VA inspection is really no different. When I say inspection, I mean a VA appraiser. That's the eyes and ears of the, of the loan, of the lender. A VA inspection is all about safety yep. issues, really. So yep. if you've got exposed wiring, if you've got a compromised structure, if you've got... Paint broken chips. windows, lead paint chips, like those types of things. But FHA is calling out those same things too. Absolutely. So VA is not on an island when it comes to inspections. They don't go in and beat the place up harder than they do on a on a FHA or conventional. Not even not even a little bit. Those are the same people. Same appraisers. The same exact Absolutely appraisers. Same appraisers. Yeah. They're a just VA certified. VA used to have their own appraisers, and that's maybe where they got a lot of their bad rap, but. Now the FHA appraisers are the same people predominantly as, as VA appraisers. Mm -hmm. And so one of two things are happening in that particular instance is one, there's something that they know is going to cause an issue on the appraisal or the inspection. And it's going to cost the seller a lot of money or two, the listing agent just is not knowledgeable in VA loans. Right. That, that literally ends up being, one of the two circumstances that happening in that in that situation and we love to be the the voice of reason sometimes with some of those listing agents i've actually called listing agents for listings that have said no to va loans and just ask them why and they just say that they don't have experience or they'll tell me that you know something's VA loans never on. appraise. They never appraise, right? Yeah. You know, the inspections, you know, I, I don't trust VA appraisers or I don't trust VA inspectors. I'm like, well, there's no difference. You don't know that. But um, the VA aspect of it for the loan product, listing agents are just scared sometimes of not doing something or transaction that they're used to. Mm -hmm. And I love to be able to take those agents sometimes if they're willing and able to have a conversation, open to having a conversation about what scares you about the VA loan. What particular process of it makes you feel as if it's any different from any other loan product that you will accept on this transaction? What questions do you have that will make this a little bit more comfortable? Because I've got a VA buyer that's very interested in being able to buy this home. And to take it back to, you know, life is not fair, right? Mm -hmm. But those people are actively blocking those who have served our country yeah. and earned their VA entitlement that they're literally entitled to. Yep. And they're throwing up a wall for them and saying, Oh, no, not going to take your VA loan. 
get out of here. Yep. You know, that's that's dangerous. That's because they're they're not willing to, you know, sometimes learn about the information that's different from a VA loan mm-hmm. from a conventional. Or they had one bad experience and they think everything's the same. One. Yeah. Well, that's why you go out and you teach. <laughs> you know, you meet, you teach, you educate, and it pays off. You know, a lot of people are they've 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 opened their eyes to the benefits of that loan. That is actually my favorite part of this job. Coincidentally, my next question is what is your favorite part of the job? My favorite part <laughs> of the job is to teach. Uh and and to I like being in an open house. Although sometimes open houses, obviously anyone who's ever run an open house has sat in a house by themselves for a couple hours at some mm-hmm. point in time. Uh pro tip to realtors Make sure that you bring a chair with you (laughs) to an open house because I've worked some open houses with agents before and we'd show up and, you know, I I don't have the listing, so I don't know. I show up and there's zero furniture in the entire house. (laughs) Nothing. Everybody's standing on or sitting on a counter. You're you're signed up for four hours and uh, that gets a little bit old. So pack a lawn chair or two and, uh, you know. Bring, bring a little table with you or something. Yeah, make sure you got something to sit on <laughs> or else the, the, the dogs are going to be barking. Um, so one of my favorite things is to end up having a conversation with somebody that tells me originally that they're already pre-approved. Pre-approved, okay, great. Who's it with? Whatever the case may be. And then through general open conversation while they're walking through the house, I find out that they're a veteran. As they're talking about their VA loan approval, I find out who it's through. I just ask probing questions about making sure that they are, do you have a disability percentage? Does the loan officer that you're speaking with or the approval that you ended up getting, did they know that you can put 5% down and lower your funding fee by 1.3%? Did they tell you that? No, I've never heard anything like that. Did they tell you that with your 100% disability, you can actually not have to pay, you know, one large portion of your tax taxes that you have? I've never heard about that. Mm-hmm. I met a job. I met a guy randomly at an event one time that's been a hundred percent disabled veteran for nine years. He's owned his house for eleven years. He paid every dollar of his taxes. Oh no, really? For the past eleven years, and had no idea that once he gets that hundred percent disability, that he can not have to worry about yeah, paying the valorum, taxes down to next yeah, to nothing. The valorum Sometimes part nothing. of the taxes, yeah, which is. Significant. I said, I asked him how much his tax bill was, and he told me $550. I said, I don't even want to make you throw up and talk about the fact that, you know, probably 500 of that you wouldn't have to pay if you would have just had the right person to and tell you. Talk about today's values, you know, six, eight, ten thousand dollar tax bills are super common. Yeah. And if you can take those down, take from go 10,000 to 1,000. That's a huge benefit. Especially if they're buying in anything that's a newer community, newer mm-hmm. construction community. Yeah. Because these CDDs and everything tacked on. They're they're huge. Yeah. They're huge. And if you can have something with such a huge benefit, like 100% disability, and you don't know the right questions to ask. Yeah, you're just going along. You're just going along. That leads me to, to talk about, um, you know, the the big names in the, in the VA world. You know, the ones that are <clears throat> on base and in all the publications yep. and... The credit unions and the... The ones that know. are tagged as military yeah. companies, but they're not run by military mm-hmm. at all. Yep. Yeah, so I got to, you know, they give them credit. They do a lot of good things. You know, they got good rates. They got good 
insurance products, banking, auto loans, credit cards. They make it convenient for service members to work through things. But they also do mortgages. But they also do everything else. Yep. And so I think that, you know, back to what I was saying about Chase earlier, when I worked there, you're in that huge machine, you know, and I think a lot of the personal connection and coming alongside of somebody for their journey through this whole process, either months or weeks or years, however long, those types of businesses just cannot support that. Mm-mm. They're not they're not set up for it. And it is what it is. You know, you got your bank there, you got your insurance products, your investment CDs, whatever. Mortgage is a little different. And you need to really think hard about who has your best interest in mind. And I was just telling a, a, a brokerage yesterday, keep in mind that a lot of these banks and large lenders, some of the loan officers that are there don't have their license, right? their state license. Mm. They, they, they go through the bank's training as to how to do a loan, not yeah. a state licensed loan officer. So for instance, we just had a gentleman of a three generation family call me, uh, tried to save uh, a deal that was absolutely dead. There, yeah. there was- Shouldn't have gotten started. There shouldn't have gotten started. This particular gentleman uh, was told that he was qualified for the VA and was sent a particular quote on a certain amount uh, for this. They were in a contract. They sent in, uh, it was like a $400,000 contract, three fifty dollars something, somewhere in that range. They were in a contract, already had the $600 inspection paid for, only to find out he does not qualify for the VA because he was active duty for only 19 days. So they didn't pull a COE. There's absolutely no way he's going to be able to, uh, to use that particular product. So that interest rate is no longer there. Mm-hmm. The zero down, no longer there. <laughs> the the um, not uh, and then on top of which, whenever we priced them out to try to see if we could save it through another product, through a completely different product, we mm-hmm. went through FHA and I explained to him with the amount of time and service that you ended up having, it's not something that's actually applicable for you to be able to use this product. Um, we try to get him FHA approved, which we were able to, but the payment difference between what we quoted him and what Veterans United quoted him was a thousand two hundred dollar difference. And we we're trying to figure out, you know, specifically how are we this far off? How is it that they could possibly quote this low on this particular property? Come to find out, their quote. And everything that was sent over to them to try to get them under contract and under the Veterans United pipeline was because they were getting quoted only principal and interest. There was no taxes. Mm-hmm. There was there was no homeowners insurance potential quote or you HOA, know a- estimate stuff. No HOA. They yeah. were missing large sections. Yeah. Well, of I just mentioned you know what for, your mortgage is that could easily be an eight thousand dollar tax bill. Oh my gosh. You know? That's, it was huge. Six thousand dollars, five hundred dollars a month, just in taxes, plus another two, three hundred in mortgage and uh, homeowners insurance. You're, you know, you're touching eight hundred dollars, maybe a hundred in HOA. You're yeah. up to nine hundred, so that's a huge difference. And that's, you know, if you're savvy enough to look at quotes and understand things and have done this before and have navigated these homeowner waters, more power to you. Yep. You know, you can see a quote and be like, "Hey, where's my taxes and insurance?" Yep. I, 
we know to ask for that because we're we have statements coming to our house and we know what our escrow accounts look like because we we've had mortgages for a long time but if you're new or if you're being if you're getting all green lights and thumbs up from your guy at uh at the call center yeah you're like well i did what i was supposed to do i talked to a lender and i got pre-approved he and here's my good. contract and he even sent me over a payment yeah you know that's so how, how much you how much more confidence are you going to instill in somebody that's completely inaccurate yeah i'm scared of you know i i don't want to say i'm scared i don't know where that came from I, I what i think happens at those places is not all of those loan officers are bad loan officers no but the good ones can't do it all yep and they get the the newbies and the people who don't care and the people who shouldn't be in that seat and they just backfill whoever they need to and put them on the phone and let them step step into that yep and that's what it that's the kind of chaos it can create in reality well with that being said there are two positive things that come from something else like that happening is that one now they have all the confidence in the world in me Mm-hmm. Because I explained every aspect of what should have happened, what their expectations should have been, why they don't, uh, 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 they're not applicable for the VA loan, where this payment discrepancy is. Now I have them as a client, and they're not going to go anywhere. And I know they're not going to shop other places or whatever the case, because you can be there as a source of information of building a bond of trust. They went through something that really hurt their feelings, and the first phone call that we had was. A thirty-minute long, teary-eyed. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but this is, you know, I wish I was the first one to get here. I hate I, to be hate the bearer of bad call. news. Yeah, I know. Hate to you. tell you this, but um, I hate to rain on the parade. But this is, I'm going to be upfront about exactly what type of expectations you should have with this particular type of purchase and loan amount and things like that. So it, it ended up in the, having a lot of confidence built between me and the client, but it also, because it was on a three-way call with the real estate agent and wanted to get an explanation, built a a stronger rapport with me and the realtor because they know that I'm going to take the time out of my day to explain somebody else's mess up Mm -hmm. and then be able to try to make it right and give them actual viable options. Yeah, which is great. That's what you're there for. That is what you do every day. It's crazy. That's, um, yeah. That's noble. I hate it when when we have when we inherit other people's messes. Yeah, yeah. sometimes that's what it takes to build new client relationships. Yeah. You know, so, you yeah. gotta you gotta walk through fire sometimes. How can we make? How can you and I make the real estate industry better? Ooh, knowledge. Uh, I would say uh, constantly being available for teaching new loan products and helping guide real estate agents to what questions to ask their potential buyers on the front end to vet them out to find out if it's worth their time. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily worth their time. That's a terrible use uh, of words there. But if if it's a it's of an active client that potentially could buy now, or if it's somebody, you know, they maybe shouldn't show houses to right away. Mm-hmm. I, I, some of the biggest things that I get back from real estate agents is the fact that I've showed this guy 12 houses and he still won't give me a pre-approval. Why? Why did you do that? Because I guarantee you there's some skeletons there somewhere that yeah. are going to fall out because as soon if you, as you get a contract. If they haven't gotten a pre-approval already, it's because they either don't want to disclose information or they are scared of what they're going to find out mm-hmm. because they don't necessarily know the information. There's the chance that you have the super clean, squared away client too, but... A lot less rare. Yes. Or a lot more a lot, rare, I should lot, say. A lot, lot less chance. Yeah. 
that's yeah that's absolutely true you most know, of the time the squared away people are have no yeah problem this is what it takes yeah let me do it let's just knock that out you know i think my favorite that approach hurt. that realtors take some realtors not all realtors you know i've heard i've heard agents say that oh well, if there's no pre-approval i'm not even going i'm not showing them a house and they they draw this firm line mm-hmm. and it's like okay well the next real estate agent is, is going to absolutely going to do that meet them at that house they want to see and take that opportunity to say hello and here's who we are here's how I work this is what I do uh, you need to get pre-approved and I'll go show you 15 houses tomorrow if but you want to do that but here's how we can help out the real estate agents in that particular circumstance is the fact that if they knew the proper questions to ask them to vet them out They'll know on whether or not that's actually going to be something that they should probably show them the house and they just haven't had the time to be able to speak with a lender yet. Or if it probably is going to be something that's going to spin the wheels. Yeah. If, if, you know, a, a starting off real estate agent knew five or six different loan questions to ask and what responses they get from their buyers are going to be a good, fl- you know, or a direct red flag, mm-hmm. then that should be probably the line that they either tiptoe over or stay behind yeah so yeah i agree just kind of getting a feel for the whole situation yeah because you don't want to lose business just because you weren't willing to you know to go to a house but if you had the questions to know that if it's going to be potentially a good loan you know a good qualifying buyer then go show them the house yeah that's fine absolutely so we've we all see a lot of people moving to florida Mm -hmm. right you talked about california coming here and new york coming here i was uh week or week ago two weeks ago i was on the phone i got a call from a lady in new york wanting to buy a second home in the gandy area in tampa mm-hmm. 340 purchase price second home new york buyer missed a call as i was on the phone called that person directly back guy from new york wanting to move to wesley chapel second home 350 purchase price New York. I'm like, what? Hold on a minute. <laughs> it took me because my brain thinks, I think in terms of specifics of scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not the best with names, but I remember the scenario first mm-hmm. before I remember the name. And when Same. I get when I get two of those, similar purchase price, both from New York, <laughs> both second homes, I'm like, okay, let me draw a line here because I'm going to get yeah. confused. And then I walked up to the front and I happened to look out the window and there was a car parked there with a New York plate on it. And I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> I just three in a row, two inbounds. And then there's a guy, I'm looking at a guy with a New York plate and is in my parking spot out here. So my question is, what do you tell people who think about or who are planning to relocate to Florida? Like, what do you tell them about our state, how to get here, what to do before they start uprooting and, and making moves? Ooh, I, I would say, um, one, I try to find out what kind of knowledge of Florida they end up having. Um, have you, do you have family members that are already here? Uh, are you, are you snowbirds? Is it something that, um, you visited a couple times and just happened to love the area? If so, where did you go? Were you in Ocala? Were you in, Tampa, were you in Orlando, were you in Jacksonville? Those are completely different areas. Mm-hmm. You know, well, even the greater Tampa area has completely different areas. Yeah, uh, and we're 
I mean, we're just as drivable as any other big city is. But mm-hmm. if you if you have work in, I don't know, South Tampa, and you were trying to buy a place in like Pasco, Epperson Ranch, or something like that, mm-hmm. or like up around San Antonio, one of all the new development up there. That's gonna be a there's a little spread between drastic difference. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to to hike it. But I also feel like that a lot of times those kind of conversations with the specifics are a lot of realist real estate agent conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I and I also try to stay in my lane mm-hmm. because I also don't want to contradict something that potentially the real estate agent has had a already existing conversation about yeah. you know i i don't want to say oh tampa's the best or brandon's my area or you should live here you should live there and then you know the realtor says you know contradicts that right i, I don't want to be a, a roadblock for the realtor yeah i don't I'm here to tell you what your payment's going to be and how much you can afford and now is there open conversations that i can have about the types of activities that they're interested in trying to be able to do in florida absolutely you know, if you're telling me you're a big fishing person, you know, you're big on boating. We I got want some I, water close to us, A right? little bit. Yeah. You know, kind of every direction that you drive <laughs> yeah. for two hours, you're going to at least hit, you know, water somewhere. So depending on what they're trying to do when they get down here, I just want to be around sunshine. Okay, well, that's going to be the whole state. I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm big time into the hunting situation. Okay, you might want to be in more closer to North Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really big on fishing. Maybe you want to be in the Bay. Maybe you want to try to see do something closer to South Florida because you can get deep sea fishing. Of the, we got to always keep in mind the Florida man is out there. Yeah, oh, you know? yeah. Always and, lingering. Yeah, he's out there, and a lot of Florida men come out of South Florida. <laughs> I can't, I can't really say anything it's because I, I own a wolf. So yeah. I, I'm kind of a Florida man myself. Yeah. And people always go, is that a coyote? And I'm like, no. No, it's a wolf. It's a total Florida <laughs> man thing. I'm like, oh, man. I, can't, I guess I can't really say anything. I do own a wolf. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but I'm not over here riding a gator, you know, or, or gator hunting, you know, by jumping on its back, you know, something crazy like that. But, yeah, but. Florida kind of instills a little bit of confidence that people probably shouldn't have sometimes. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Florida man is always lingering. And Florida man's usually from somewhere else, though. Yeah. That's not, that's not what they... They don't tell you that. Usually from the bayou. <laughs> that's a lot of Florida man congruencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts behind the market shift, our changing market, and how can agents adjust and adapt to fluctuating market conditions? Like, what can agents do to help insulate themselves from market changes. Ooh. Okay. Um, Don't get set in your own ways of saying it's a buyer's market or it's a seller's market every day. I feel like once you start to develop certain sales patterns or conversation patterns that a lot of times people have, you're thinking that it's going to be that way forever. So that's that's kind of to say, I only focus on listings. I'm not a buyer's agent. Why? Or I only want to help buyers. I don't want to take on listings. Why? Yeah. Why Why are you putting yourself or shutting that door on additional amount of income? Mm-hmm. Take these opportunities and and learn from them. I, I, it's the same way with the mortgage game. When we were in, in the heat of COVID, purchasing wasn't our main source of income. It was refinancing. 
we had everybody and their brother needed to refi needed a refi yeah you know why would you you know how dumb would it have been for me to be like i'm only going to deal with buyers i'm not touching refinances (laughs) you know that that would have been a a a little bit of a shot in my own foot that's funny you bring that up because we've never been we're not a refi intensive shop no like our our refi percentages have always been pretty low and it's been repeat business past clients referrals and we don't actively market to do refis no and it got to the point where we had to we had we, we weren't marketing they <laughs> yeah. were just people were calling Non-stop. they were coming to us because we did their loan a year two three years ago whatever and and we did a good job and they, they like us and so they were coming back they wanted to do it more and i think a big thing about that whole thing is we didn't we didn't lose sight of our purchase business yeah. at the same time you know we we kept we kept up doing stuff that we do covid was a thing so we were very much in our own bubbles but we if stayed anything, present with our people and our agents and made sure that we were there for them for anything that they needed. If anything, we, we kept purchase as our number one and refinance, even though it was a very high demand. It got to about 50-50 yeah, for a little it while. It was a very high demand, but we still knew that the refinance aspect was going to take some time because of the appraisals. Mm-hmm. The appraisals being you know, 30, 45 days out. Remember those days? That's, that was still a quick that one. That was crazy. Yeah, we, were seeing, we were seeing two, three months sometimes. That was absurd. And it was very hard to set proper expectations when you've got appraisals that far out and just the demand of appraisals at yeah. that particular time. Now, that's not an issue. No. It's gone back to the point of not an issue. Mm-hmm. Appraisals can be done very quickly. They can be, the, the the appraised value can come in to where we can have an actual conversation as to where we are on, on the actual loan with an appraisal instead of doing it the day before closing, yeah. two days before closing, okay. three days before closing, right up to the finish line, we were getting this information back. And that's a completely different circumstance of trying to, you know, of trying to resurrect some of these loans that because of the appraised value that it came back, it was technically dead. Mm-hmm. It was real close. Well, everybody learned slow heartbeat. About all kinds of appraisal issues during that time. Yep. You know, everybody, Again, everybody was an appraisal expert. Another growing period, mm-hmm. another growing and learning period. And, you know, the appraisers are there to act as a throttle on the market because if they're just giving everybody the values that you want, then we're going to get in trouble again. Absolutely. And you got to have the comps recorded and done and sold in the books for that to be a comp. You can't say that this house is listed. It's about to sell. Well, it hadn't sold yet, so it's not a comp. Which, and again, we got into that a lot, you know, yeah. and everybody was when when the 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 values were shooting up faster than the appraised values could catch them. Everybody learned about appraisal gaps and everybody learned about appraisal contingencies and getting those written into their contracts. And that was a forced learning experience. So back to your answer, you're saying don't put yourself in a corner and say, this is all I'm going to do because you got to shift and you got to adapt and, and it's going to change whether you like it or not. Yeah. It's going to change quickly. I, I can see an agent in, 2004 saying i'm never going to do a short sale and then 2006 rolls around seven Mm -hmm. and now if you know if you don't know how to do short sales you're you're not going to be able to be a real estate agent now because this is all that's happening you know short sales are huge yeah i'm trying to trying to explain to it or having a real estate agent say i'm never going to have a facebook or, or instagram at one point i heard that there were more listings than there are agents I believe it. And I don't know if that was, I'm I'm sorry. No, I'm totally backwards. More agents agents than there are are listings. listings. And I don't know if that was to one area or the whole country or what, but, you know, we, we saw this 
this boom time during COVID have a lot more people step into the industry and become real estate agents because everybody heard about somebody that was cash and checks. Yeah. And, and yeah. I get that, but a lot of those people now, and even lenders on that side, uh, yeah. a lot well, of everybody, different people every, came into it and, and were, and were writing loans left and right. And it was hard to get business because everybody was trying to cut your legs out from under you on the commission that they were taking. Mm -hmm. They would undercut your quote, underquote, uh, undercut your LE if you had somebody that was not willing to not shop you was essentially like and they sent out your information through your um your le to somebody else who he who quotes last wins i mean that's just what the industry was at that time mm -hmm. but there were so many different loan officers and mortgage lenders that were that that are no longer existent now yeah. because they Lots couldn't traction they couldn't hold on to their repeat business because they didn't build proper relationships with the real estate agents. They didn't build proper relationships with repeat business and they didn't have necessarily what it took to be able to stay in there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how far we've come. Yeah. And it's all, it's ever changing. And the only constant in this industry is change. And everybody, I think everybody knows that. And if you don't, it will become blatantly obvious to you the longer that you stay in the industry the longer you see it's like okay we're reinventing again <laughs> here, it here comes. We go we're gonna again. reinvent again and it just happens and that's just the way it is it is know? kind of like that is the second that you kind of get comfortable doing one particular type of either loan product or really f heavily focusing focusing on refinancing or 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 first-time home purchase or you know usda or whatever the case you know whatever mm -hmm. niche you end up having once you get kind of comfortable in that the market switches. Turns, yeah. The market switches. Yep. And you, you got to adapt. Well, you have to adapt. Yeah. You have to be able to roll the punches and changes and absorb and be forward thinking the whole time. Absolutely. This whole industry is not for the faint of heart. No. You know, you're going you're gonna to have struggles. It's going to be feast or famine mm -hmm. a lot of times. What advice do you have for homeowners? Or, uh, no, let me change that. What advice do you have for home buyers looking to purchase in Florida? Some of the, uh, one of the biggest things for me is about knowing that this is a long-term process. The long-term process of it, a lot of people just start, just start to think about exactly, you know, if I buy now, it's going to start making me money now. And that's not the mindset that you want to be in. It's about setting yourself up for the long-term, setting yourself up for the, the long-term goals of property wealth or longevity for being able to add to a portfolio. This is not something that's gonna happen overnight. Your equity is not gonna go from the second you buy a home to double that within a year. It's gonna be something that you wanna make sure that you're doing the proper research and the and talking with the right professionals to be able to make a long-term goal of wealth. What do you tell people who are stressed out during the home search and who who are just, who it's too much for them? What, what, do you, what kind of advice do you have for them? There's always another one. There's always another one, and, and tomorrow it might pop up. It might pop up in a week. They have to understand that that particular property, just because they don't get the deal that they want originally, there needs to be a ceiling as to how when that deal does not make sense and when it does. Once the particular contract or the particular offer that you put in does not work or, or you need to go or escalate, you need to be able to walk away. You need to be able to walk away the same way that you need to at a car dealership. 
if he gets to a certain point to where this is not a good financial decision, have the emotional aspect be separate from the intelligent aspect of what's actually going to be financially beneficial. Be able to walk away. It's okay if you don't get that house because there's always going to be another one. People are always going to be selling homes. And it's a long-term commitment. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is a long arc. It's not a it's not a month-to-month thing. Because if that deal doesn't make sense today, it absolutely is not going to make sense in a year. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be paying that payment no matter what. Well, they say you make or lose money when you buy the house, not when you sell it. Yep. So if you buy it right and you're that that's when you're going to come out on top. Yep. And same thing happened for me. I got very emotionally attached the first time I was looking into homes. I found this particular home that I really, really was interested in. And I felt I, I could see myself in it. I, I could visualize all the furniture. Everybody has that aha moment, you know, when they can see themselves in the house. And I didn't get it. And I started to start to really go out of my way to bid higher and try mm-hmm. to get everything I possibly this ain't gonna could. going to happen to me again. Yeah, no way. <laughs> right. And I, I just realized very quickly that I was starting to get into a point of making a very bad financial decision for the long term. And I had to take my emotions out of it. And then I ended up finding the house that I currently have and ended up making a great financial decision at that time because I was able to walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. On today's episode of the Florida Housing Hour. Currently, you can find us on the FloridaHousingHour.com. Um, we're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're waiting on Apple to get there with us. Uh, but we're going to be everywhere podcasts are heard. So watch out. Anybody left in this business park, I'm coming for you. Yeah, the there number we go. One podcast. <laughs> yeah, number one podcast. We'll see you again next time. Take care, guys.